Gonna paint that wagon, gonna paint it good. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. There's a sound effect. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic for whatever outlet will have me. And uh, I don't have a cute nickname, but my scintillating co-host does. Yeah, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for also wherever will have me. And uh, yeah, everybody calls me Bibbs. Because of my name. Because your last name is Bibbsiani. No. It's Bibbsiani. Yeah, Bibbsiani. I don't know why. The, the, the S thing just stuck. It, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know... Like, Cute nickname sort of thing. Uh, everyone called my dad Bib. Okay. And I guess I was the second one, so I made it plural. Bib the second. Two yeah. Bibs. Bibs. All right. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Anyway, this is a big week on Critically Acclaimed. We have got a ton of movie reviews, including the new releases, Extraction, The Willoughby's, Circus of Books, 0.0 Megahertz, and To The Stars. And thank on, you, thank you, Mr. Movie Phone. No, I was going for more anger than that. Oh, <laughs> and uh, also on our critically acclaimed streaming club, where we catch up on movies on streaming uh, that neither Whitney nor I have seen. Classics, if you will. Uh, we are watching the the shoot 'em up, deadly, violent Ca- cavalcade of chaos that is Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin in the western. Paint your wagon no. with blood, I'll bet. We uh, we we put these uh, we put these out to you, dear listeners. Yeah. We, we, these are selected by you in polls. We put out polls in various locations online, and uh, you we can put vote them on, on them. We put them on Patreon. We put them on Patreon. Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. People get to decide what we watch every week. What, what we watch every week for this podcast, and um, I, I thought you liked us. No, they do not. I guess not, because you no. chose Paint Your Wagon. They did. Uh, I'm just going to say this right now. Uh-huh. Um, if you ever are, are are in the mood to maybe skip the streaming club because you focused on uh, new releases, don't skip this week. We have stuff to say. <laughs> oh, do we? But before we get to um, the, the litany of horrors that is uh, Paint Your Wagon. Mm, the most violent movie we have ever encountered. Violent, gory. It makes those uh, those guinea pig movies look like a walk in the park. Everything we're saying now will be funny later. <laughs> We're going to review some new films, and, right. uh, and there are some very talked about movies. There's at least yeah. one very talked about movie mm-hmm. that was released on Netflix this week. Yep, it stars Chris Hemsworth from those Thor movies you like, and also all those movies you don't like. Well, he was... Uh, he was in Black Hat. Black Hat, uh, In the Heart of the Sea, mm-hmm. Vacation. Um, it's a good thing he has Thor. Uh, yeah, he's, beyond, he's had a rough go of it outside of Thor. Because beyond that, I think Rush might be his only just legitimately okay. good film. Rush is legitimately yeah. good. I like Ghostbusters, but regardless mm. of whether you like it, I think it's hard to deny that he's funny in it. He is funny in it. He's yeah. actually pretty hilarious. He's also really funny in Vacation. He's like the funniest part of that movie. Just that mm. movie is unbelievably terrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but this is him back in action mode, uh, and uh, yeah, it's called Extraction. Chris Hemsworth plays a mercenary who's been hired to mm. extract a kidnapped child 
there is a teenager uh, who is the son of a drug kingpin who has been kidnapped by the other drug kingpin. And this is all in India. Yep. And uh, the problem is... uh, well, the problem is twofold. One, the dad is in prison and their business isn't going too well and he can't afford to pay the ransom. Uh, two, even so, this is like a humiliating thing to do to a drug kingpin and he is going to want to fuck some shit up. Mm. So they hire Chris Hemsworth and he, more or less alone, mm. goes on a massive killing spree in India trying to rescue this teenage boy and it turns out that you know, one of the guys who hired him might have turned on him, and it gets more complicated because maybe everyone in the world wants this kid and dead. Look, every single story beat in Extraction you've seen in better movies. Mm. Uh, you've seen in every kind of kidnapping movie. This is isn't this the plot of both of the Sicario movies? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's especially the plot of the second this, one, mo- yeah. more the second one. But yeah, this, yeah. this idea that a drunk kingpin's child has been kidnapped, and bad guys and good guys are both after that child. Perhaps the best known example of this uh, particular story line is Tony Scott's really quite excellent Man on Fire. Which I haven't seen, actually, which is a pity because I love Denzel. Denzel is amazing, and here's what the reason why Man on Fire works. And there are some people who have trouble with Man on Fire because it was Tony Scott in the middle of his hyper-editing phase, mm. uh, which I think after Domino he pulled way back on. Because Domino is... Domino's insufferable. Domino's, Dom, I want to like Domino. I love the idea. I love the cast. And man, it is just hard to watch. It is mm. so cacophonous. Um, man on Fire gets it right. There is a lot of fast-paced editing, and it might be too much for some people. However, the story is strong. Uh, Denzel Washington is hired to uh, protect Dakota Fanning uh, back mm. when she was quite young. Um, and... Uh, over the course of the first part of the film, this hardened mercenary, this you know unstoppable killing machine, forms a close bond with this girl before anything bad happens. So when something bad happens, we are on his side when he goes on a horrifying killing spree. It's the same principle as Taken, where we spend a lot of time with Liam Neeson and his daughter so that when she's kidnapped, we understand what he's feeling when he goes on a killing spree. It's the same thing about the original John Wick, where Mm. the first time we meet John Wick, we find out his wife died tragically way too young, and she gave him a dog in order to help him remember to learn, remember to love. And so when all of that is taken away, we're with him when he's on his killing spree. Mm. Here's the problem with Extraction. We have no reason to give a shit about this killing spree. Uh, we, We really don't. And I think it exists just to sort of stage the action. They tried to come up with maybe the basest story possible. Mm. Um, it's hard for me to take a movie like this seriously after seeing Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. That's a good point. Because that's the same story. It's about this kind of for-hire muscle-bound mercenary who is hired to break into a criminal's lair and rescue someone. <laughs> the thing is, that film... Actually, looks uh, doesn't really foreground the story. It looks at uh, and foregrounds the suffering of the main character and what a emotionally damaged life you would have to lead in order to continue to live in that lifestyle. Yeah, in order to do this more than once, mm. in order to do this at all, in order to look directly into the abyss and, over and over again, the kind of people who and would kidnap people and what would happen. Mm. 
That movie, I called it the best movie of the year when it came out. I stand by it. That movie is harrowing and ingenious, and it hits all of the beats that we are familiar with from a lot of action movies, but it doesn't hit them the same way. And you're right. It is kind of hard to look at this kind of brainless action movie the same way because now I am consciously aware that there is no soul in this movie. No, there's no soul. There's no thought of like human life at stake here. There's not even a sense of risk. Not uh, especially. I mean, like there are times when he's hmm. outgunned and then the music gets all yeah. moody and we hit slow mo and I'm like, oh no. But you know, maybe the movie's about to end. Like that's they, they, where uh, I'm at. I don't actually think he's gonna die at any point. They, they gave the Chris Hemsworth character like a little bit of a tragic backstory that he hints at like two or three times, but it actually doesn't really come into play. It doesn't affect his actions. He we just don't sort of actually charges learn- out into streets and starts murdering people in broad daylight. Well, we don't even know what it is to mm. speak of. The whole reason why we should form an emotional connection to Chris Hemsworth's character as a human being, mm. not as an instigator of violence, which can be fun. Like, Commando is fun. It's irresponsible, but it's really fun. But the reason why we f- allow Arnold Schwarzenegger to get away with the reckless mass murder of Commando is because before that we give a shit mm-hmm. we see him with his daughter we understand that if anything happened to her he'd go on a killing spree he is on a picnic or something he's kind of drunk gets hired to rescue the kid kills half the people in India mm-hmm. and then two thirds of the way through a movie he's just like Ah, I feel bad about this thing that happened once. And then he goes back on his killing spree. Not affected, nothing changes. Yeah, it doesn't change the way we view him or the way that we view the action. It doesn't... Mm. All all it is is, oh shit, we forgot to do this earlier. More or less, yeah. yeah. We should have started the movie with that, with some sort of tragedy. Something, I don't know. It should. And the thing is is that because the movie is so fast-paced, and it is, it's, it's really brisk, and I'll, I'll talk about the action sequences in a minute because they kind of are begging to be discussed separately. Mm. But there's so much action. It takes place over the course of about a day. He doesn't get to spend a lot of time forging a relationship with this teenager that might illuminate well, him and who he is or make us care I, about him. It's just the thing he does. I, w- I was going to bring this up, actually, because uh, this actually goes to... Um, the fact that this was produced by uh, Joe and Anthony Russo. Yeah, and written are, by Joe Russo, who adapted, uh, adapted a graphic from, novel. Uh, and in fact, didn't Joe Russo also invent, like, write the novel? Did he? I think Joe Russo is one of the masterminds behind the graphic novel. Oh, cool. So, um, now, if, if you look at uh, what Joe and Anthony Russo are best known for in its Avengers movies, hmm. they did um, four of them? Because they did, uh, they did uh, Captain America: Civil War. Yeah, they did Captain. No, they, uh, they did Winter Soldier. They did Civil War. Okay. They did Avengers: Endgame and Avengers: uh, um, Infinity War. Infinity War. Yeah. So, yeah. so they did four. They did four them. MCU movies. Yeah. Three of which, if you include Civil War, and I think you should are, are Avengers, like Avengers movies. movies. They're and, certainly and course, big team up ensemble. I'll, I'll say, you know, whatever criticisms you have, or however much you love these movies, uh, you can say that they are pretty masterful at maintaining a kind of almost balletic clarity mm-hmm. of action. They are really, really good at action sequences. Whether or not that's Joe or Anthony Russo, whether or not that's they just hired like the best crack second unit ever, mm-hmm. uh, can be debated, but I think we, we have to look at the directors. No, they, they, listen, they're uh, responsible for assembling the film, 
And I think that Winter Soldier, I just think, I know you don't like as much as I do, but Winter Soldier, I just think, is a good movie. All right. Uh, Civil War, Infinity uh, uh, War, and um, Endgame are really tricky balancing acts. Yeah, because you have 30 characters and you have to cover them all. Winter Soldier is a pretty linear series of events. I think it's quite good. I like all those other movies, too. But uh, yeah, for Endgame is a bit sloppy. But other than that, man, yeah, it's a miracle that any of those films work. That you can tell what's going on at yeah. any given moment. Yeah, their and, main uh, job is just to keep all the balls in the air without dropping mm-hmm. anything. And, and they and, did it. And they did it. They yeah, did it. Good for uh, them. so uh, I'm credit where credits due. But you'll notice in those movies, especially the big team up movies. There's not a lot a lot of extended time given to background and story because essentially all of that was set up over the course of like 15 to 20 earlier films. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our knowledge of what's going on in the scenario, a lot of our knowledge of the characters has already been laid and they can just do shorthand. To get to big emotional beats. That's right. A lot of like one or two two scenes, maybe a choice line of dialogue or two, and we know exactly where that character is emotionally because of all of the baggage. I think uh, Endgame is a bit of an exception because they have to sort of cut cut to five years later. But even then, even we get that scene with Hawkeye, we get that scene with Captain America Mm -hmm. at um, you know the survivors meeting and all that kind of stuff. Even with all that. Mm you have to race through it pretty quick. Like yeah. everyone gets one scene, maybe two, if they it's get like, to share a scene. Exactly. So, so, yeah, I feel like even this was produced by the Russes. Uh, the director is, uh, Sam Hargrave, who is a stunt coordinator until mm-hmm. now. Um, I think they're taking similar storytelling beats. Only this time it's an original story. They feel that perhaps, here's my theory that in order to have any kind of emotional beats, all you need is shorthand now, which Mm. when you're dealing with such a cliched film, like extraction, maybe that works. Maybe all you need is the most compulsory emotional beat dropped really obviously in front of the Mm -hmm. viewer's lap. You don't need to extrapolate that. You don't need to spend a lot of scenes building character. You just need the base elements in order to set up all the big spectacular action, the raid redemption. No, I'm sorry. The the original The Raid. That was The Raid Redemption. Yeah, The Raid Redemption. The Raid 2 was just called The Raid 2. Yeah, yeah. The Raid Redemption... Like what? You get like five minutes of setup, and then it's not the first. It's it's a real brisk setup, and honestly, I find that movie a little exhausting after a while. But it does work. Yeah. So it can work. It can be done. It it can be done. But you know, if if this was Chris Hemsworth, just sort of steps off a helicopter, and it's just sort of action. He goes straight through. And maybe he's sort of stoic and he gets a few lines here and there. That's a different kind of, slightly different kind of movie. Mm. And you and you kind of are able to accept a little bit more that this is just an action setup for all of these big action set pieces. Mm-hmm. I think the, if we're taking yeah. time to set up something that looks like a story and trying to give him like really emotional baggage and you're actually setting up this thing to have a tone of general kind of downbeat dourness. Yeah, grim. Yeah, it's, it's, a, grim it's, it's a really film. grim film, I yeah. agree. And... Uh, then you can't treat it like it's just an action spectacular. The drama is there asking to be taken seriously. Exactly. Like a lot of the movies that I think can get away with that kind of narrative simplicity or even Mm. hokiness are, if not light, at the very least larger than life. Yeah, it's kind of operatic in a way. Yeah, exactly. Commando is a great example. Commando is a Saturday morning cartoon. Mm. It is. I like it fine. It's an entertaining motion picture. But it's, it's... Pretty straightforward, and it's it's very, very simple. You want to be a little bit removed 
from the fact that we're seeing a ton of people get brutally murdered. The more you focus on how brutal the violence is, the more you focus on how damaged the characters are, even if you don't focus on it, it's Chris Hemsworth is not having a good time in most mm. of this movie. Uh, the more upsetting it is when you don't treat them like real characters. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of this movie doesn't do that. There's one exception to that, kind of. Uh, there is, and I'm not going to spoil it for you because it happens late enough in the movie. Uh, Chris Hemsworth knows a guy in India who used to be a mercenary, and mm-hmm. he goes and he goes to him for help. It's a bit of a cameo. It's not a huge cameo. It's not Schwarzenegger or anything, but it's a bit can, of like. Can we say oh, who, the, no, who the actor let's, is? Let's or? just not. Okay. Let's just not. It's he's not in it very long. Let's just not. Okay. But it's sort of like, oh, I didn't know he was in the movie. Cool. Mm. And I like the actor. That guy, in one and a half scenes has way more character than anyone else in the movie because in those scenes, he gets to do human shit. Like, he, he hangs out and converses yeah, and, and, and stuff. And cooks you know? with somebody and gets drunk and admits to fear and mm. and d- despair and actually talks about himself without even going to great length about it. Mm-hmm. That's a real character. If the whole movie had had that personality, maybe this would have worked. With that actor, in fact. That'd I think it would have cool. been better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah no, I, I, I agree. Um, Chris Hemsworth, sadly, I don't think is that kind of actor. Mm. I don't think he really can delve into a kind of humorous, self-aware pathos. Um, just that's not one of his instruments. I, I don't think he's been given an opportunity. Yeah. I think he's done a little bit of that. Mm. In the MCU, especially in the uh, Avengers: Infinity War and uh, Endgame movies, where he was like he, he oh, failed to save went, his went people, to and, seed a little yeah, bit, yeah, and like and like he was feeling grief, and mm. you know that he has that really great scene with his mom in uh, Endgame. Oh, wouldn't where, call it a great scene. I think it's, it's really really great. I think you get to see a superhero express that sort of child. How often do you get to see? Uh, superheroes with their moms yeah like give their moms hugs yeah, yeah and like and just and just like mom it's really hard right now and so she's like, like i know like that's a really so like endearing moment but they're all teenagers yeah. So, yeah. but it's a really good moment i thought and mm. i thought it was very humanizing for you know for a larger than life character and we just i think he could do it but he's given almost nothing here what he is good at and i will give him this is he looks like he could beat the shit out of 20 people <laughs> I well, believe yeah. that he could beat the shit out of 20 people, shoot 100 people on his way to work. Like, yeah. he is cast as the tough guy here, and he sells it really, really good. You know, this is the kind of movie that a stunt person often makes. Like, when you see people move from one side of the industry into the director's chair, oftentimes whatever they used to do mm-hmm. kind of takes top priority or it seems to have been foregrounded yeah so if a writer becomes a director often the screenplay is you know it's it's not just a visual spectacle the screenplay is really really important and it's mm-hmm. treated like really really important if an actor right. becomes a director there's often a lot of emphasis on character interactions and emotion Whitney you're about to say uh, I need to correct myself um I thought it took place in India because most of the cast are, are Indian actors, yeah. uh, but it actually takes place in Bangladesh. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's, it's mostly, in, uh, mostly Indian actors. One uh, featured Iranian actor, but it takes place in Bangladesh. I, I also uh, was wrong. So yeah, I, I, I didn't catch I, I, you. I apologize Thank you for, for catching that. that. Um, I really appreciate it. But my point is is that yeah. the, a, stunt, a stunt person and stunt coordinator is directing a movie, and as a result, perhaps unsurprisingly, but nevertheless impressively, there's a lot of really impressive stunts here. There's a lot of really impressive mm. fighting here. There is at least one sequence in the middle where 
uh, Chris Hemsworth has been betrayed and he's grabbing the kid and they have to go on the run. And they do, you can see a couple of cuts, but they're p- trying to pull off the epic oneer. Yeah. That you, yeah. you know, the, the kind of classic, the one that you see like in like, you know, uh, Spielberg's Alfonso ten- Cuaron movie. Alfonso yeah. Cuaron does it all the time. Mm. Inaritu did it in The Revenant. Steven Spielberg did what would have been the most epic oneer ever well, if it was an live anime. action. It was an animated film. But, but yeah. nevertheless, an, an, <laughs> impress- Tintin, yeah. an impressive spectacle in Tintin. Um, the way they do it here and the way it, like fl- the camera flies out of windows and then into cars and then sticks in the car and becomes someone's POV and then flies mm. through windshield. I gotta say, when I'm watching this sequence, at least once, and I think twice, I, I and I've seen a lot of movies like this that have tried to do something as bravura, I literally went, wow. Because <laughs> I couldn't figure out how they handed off that camera. Like mm. that was... Hard. I saw a movie once. I'm trying to remember what it was. There was a movie uh, where they did that thing where they like they flew the camera down the street and then into the car. And then mm. how did they do that without seeing the guy, camera guy in the car? Mm. Turns out the camera guy was disguised as the front seat. Oh, that's like that. So that level of trickery, that kind of old school trickery, yeah. can be used here. So I was really, really impressed at the logistics here. I'm certainly on a technical level. There's some really impressive work being done. Problem is, I gave no shits. No, and like know, I didn't care about what was actually happening. If, I was impressed at how good it looked, but I didn't care. If you're going to grab me with action, just do action, yeah. like the raid, or make the action kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, even say it's boldly irresponsible, like in something like Commando or Taken, mm. which are you know <laughs> gr- grievously morally irresponsible movies. Yep, I love them. They're delightful, <laughs> but you should but, not base your morality yeah, but, around the movie but Taken. Every, but but those characters are wrong. Um, <laughs> Don't try to get me to care if you don't. And I don't think the characters or the, the filmmakers care about the characters. Yeah, I think they care about the action. That's what comes across anyway. Yeah. And if they uh, did they, care about other things, they screwed up because it didn't come across. Yeah. Also, if you're going to do action, why are you choosing the blandest scenarios? Mm. Why are you doing a military thriller where all the guys are just sort of like you have your one white beef tower in the middle you know, firing two guns and going, ah, and, uh, and you know, they're, they're smashing through just this sort of bland American rendition of the third world. That's filmed with all these yellow filters. Cause they all look the same. Anything outside of America looks the same in these we, thrillers. We've been chasing the look uh, of black Hawk down for a long time, which came first black Hawk down or the born identity. I think Black Hawk Down. Okay. I could be wrong. They, I'll they, check. They, that, it was around then anyway. Yeah, that, 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 that solidified film, that time. Action film aesthetics that is specifically espionage and military thrillers started to have this very new definite aesthetic. And that's I kind think, of around I, the time it was born. Uh, Black Hawk Down. Yeah. Um, mm. Black Hawk Down came first. Okay. I, regardless, I think it's a Ridley Scott thing. I think he kind of started mm. that basic look and feel with Gladiator, and then heightened it in Black Hawk Down. And mm. since then, everyone's been chasing that. I, I, which I wish they wouldn't, because I don't like either of those movies. Oh, I, I have issues mm. with both of them. Mm. Completely different issues, but yeah. I like them both. Um, I, I so, just there's there's nothing at the heart of this. I'm just sort of. You know, no, what, no matter how spectacular it is, I'm bored. I'm bored by it. But here's it's the hard, thing. It's just boring to look at I'm not, after I'm a not, while. I'm not going to play devil's advocate here. All right. Because we're doing a podcast. I'm not just going to start up some Keanu Reeves Al Pacino movie in the middle of it. 
It's a terrible, uh, barely a joke. Why, I don't why know why, did, why I did you that. do that. Yeah. I just, I, I apologize. It was terrible. <laughs> Someone's already halfway through a bingo board right now. Um, we have our bingo boards and our Facebook page. By the way, in the late '90s, Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino made a movie called The Devil's Advocate, directed by Taylor Hackford. Yeah, it's 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 uh, sleazy and fun. Agreed, hmm. very much so. Um, but uh, where was I? Where, oh, Devil's Advocate. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, when I was younger. So much younger than today. Mm-mm. I liked more movies like this. Okay. I think uh, you and I are at a point in our lives where just seeing cool action and just seeing cool choreography mm-hmm. isn't enough. Because we've seen enough movies mm-hmm. with cool action choreography. When you are just discovering cinema and maybe you're used to the same type of movie over and over again, like seeing a movie with this much visual uh, flair and this much effort given to the action mm. might still be relatively novel. I'm sure you've probably seen mm. John Wick by now, but most movies don't go this all out. I, I suppose so. So I'm but... just saying there may be a group of people who just like it for the action. However, mm. I don't think that's enough. So I just want to it's say, like, I get enough. it if you I enjoy think... this movie, but I just think it's so much. It's, Throwing in so many more elements and none of those elements work. Yeah, it, and as a result, it hurts the one element that does. The the argument that this might be the first blank for someone it doesn't hold a lot of water for me because it's already been outdone by so many other better films by people who are old enough to have seen these movies. You mentioned John Wick. Sure, watch the fifth or the sixth um, Mission Impossible film, yeah. which actually does all of these things right, where it has spectacular, mind blowing action. Uh, that that sixth movie has some of the like one of the best Ooh. motorcycle chases I've ever seen. Uh, no, fifth one has a motorcycle chase. No, sixth one too. <laughs> oh, you're right. Y'all. There's, oh, I forgot there was another motorcycle. Yeah, chase. I remember I, it being a truck chase. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. Yeah, it's a good motorcycle chase. Yeah, and you know, need to that all of all of those like typical spy movie things and those Mission Impossible movies are made better by a special effort. They invent something kind of original. Mm-hmm. Remember the scene where uh, Tom Cruise was uh, tied shirtless to a pole. And somehow, like, grabbed the pole, flipped upside down, and did these weird sit-up maneuvers to yeah. jump over the top of the pole. It was cool. The hell was that? It was awesome. Yeah. Can, Make- Tom, can Tom Cruise actually do that? Yeah, he probably can. Well, he probably, can. probably worked out enough Cri- so he could do that. Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote and directed the last two Mission Impossibles and did some punch-ups, at least, on the script for four. Mm. Uh, he His philosophy is... Uh, it's called Mission Impossible. Everything they do should seem impossible, impossible. to do. Yeah, yeah. And if it looks like something they've done before, halfway through it, you got to make it impossible again. So mm. you got to be like, oh, we'll just jump down on this pole. The pole like snaps in half. Shit, it doesn't work that same way anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wish more action filmmakers would take up uh, James Cameron's philosophy. If you're going to make a movie, it has to be... Spec- new and spectacular in some sort of way. Yeah, not just big, new. Not just, I want to do these cool stunts, let's just sort of do the usual thing. Yeah. It's like, think of a good place to put those stunts. Yeah. Think of a new scenario to put like, those stunts. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out there. Like, True Lies is, there a, you go. is a really. I actually find it a very troublesome movie well, in a lot of ways. It's, it's incredibly racist, it's, for it's one. It's pretty darn yeah. racist. It's pretty darn sexist. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of other things that have to do with the production that I just find unpleasant. However, um, as pure spectacle, it's actually kind of amazing how he manages to fit certain action sequences in there. I don't even remember why the horse was on the rooftop. <laughs> I just remember him trying to jump to another rooftop on the horse. And the horse backed off. And the horse is like, fuck this! And then he's hanging from the building. 
And That's then, and amazing. Then he, and he says, back up, back up. And then he admonishes the horse. I thought you were a police officer. <laughs> What's your badge it's, number? Yeah, he's like, that was, that was funny. It's funny. Yeah, it's, and, it's a good way to it, relieve tension. That's building a, funny a movie scene. around action sequences can may lead to amazing movies. Case in point, North by Northwest. One of the best thrillers of all time. In fact, many of the thrillers that you know and love today and that you and I love know and love today are based, or at the very least, owe a huge debt of gratitude to North by Northwest, which wasn't even Hitchcock's first thriller of its ilk, but it was the biggest. And North by Northwest is full of action sequences that have nothing to do with anything. It's that, fa- that famous crop duster scene where Cary Grant's out in a field. We see on camera a crop duster in the back, and we see as the crop duster is like getting closer and closer. Yeah, that's kind of spooky. What what's gonna happen? Like, what? How's the bad guy gonna get Cary Grant? Like, crash a plane into him? What was the bad guy's yeah. plan? Like, listen, I want you to get a crop dusting plane and hang out in this desert just in case. Like, Cary do, Grant do is circles, and when you see him get yeah. out, it starts flying like, toward what, him. Well, what if he gets in a car? Well, then dust the crops. I don't <laughs> fucking know. Like, it's it's it makes no sense. Mm. But you're so invested in it because the characters are so strong, the writing is so strong mm. that. It doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense. And it's just not the case in Extraction. So we're going to move on. No. But this was a bit of a letdown. Yeah. I, I, I was looking forward to it. I like Chris Hemsworth. I like crazy action movies. And it just doesn't understand where to put the emphasis in it. Yeah. I, 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 I criticized it on Twitter. and mm. Lord help me. I criticized it on Twitter. I, uh, mm. I Listen, I, I retweeted you mm. before I'd even seen it just because I support your opinion and your voice. And that, then I watched say, it and yeah. I was like, yeah, he's pretty much right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, gl- I'm glad we, you've ended up agreeing we, with something. We, we don't tweeted. always agree on, on pop entertainment. Sometimes mm. I can be a bit more forgiving. But this is not one of those times. I think you were no, right. No, no. Uh, but uh, you know what movies... Also new on Netflix that is really, really good. <laughs> There's a new animated film called Gosh. The Willoughbys. Okay. God, I love The Willoughbys. Um, <laughs> the Willoughbys. The Willoughbys so is so good. Like, are you a fan of Roald Dahl? Yeah. I mean, the books Roald Dahl. Not those, like, kind of relatively friendly feature film adaptations of Some Roald of them Dahl. get it. Some of them get it. Matilda has it in fits. But uh, yeah. you read Roald Dahl, and you can tell he's a big Dickens fan. Mm-hmm. But he's a Dickens fan who doesn't like children. Uh, and he, yet he writes children's and he writes, books. He writes children's book for children. But you read and that's it, why like, children respond to it, because we know we're not being mollycoddled. Yeah. We, we know he's like, this guy is out to get us, but we'll get him in the end of the book. <laughs> so you read you know, something like uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Or and, the Twits. Yeah. Just these angry, bitter stories yeah, about but, punishing children. <laughs> So, there is a, a definite dourness mm-hmm. to uh, Roald Dahl. Are you a fan of the Adams Family? Yeah! <laughs> uh, Rob Zombie put it really well. Uh, he did a commentary track recently for Monsters Go Home, because he's a big fan of the mon- oh Monsters. Oh my god, I no. really want to listen to that commentary yeah, track. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that sounds but great. But I, I heard it quoted. He said, um, the difference between the Monsters and the Adams Family is the Monsters are, an or- are ordinary people who look like monsters. Mm-hmm. The Adams family are monsters who look like ordinary people. Yeah. Uh, in in the animated films, they're kind of monstrous, but yeah, they just look like people. They're not like mutants or f- well, I yeah. guess cousin it, but you know, I'll lurch a little bit. And, they, depending on depending on how they portray him, he can be yeah. kind of Frankensteinish. But you look at somebody like Gomez Adams; he's just a guy in a suit. Guy know? in a he's, suit. <laughs> Morticia, you know, woman in a dress. Woman in a dress. You know, they, Ugly and Wednesday. Kids in outfits. Two vicious like, little shits. That's yeah. all they are. Fester. Um, he's bald. Okay, but. <laughs> They love what they do, and we love that they love that they, what they do. And what they do is uh, 
kind of introduce chaos and misery into the world. The other the other element that comes together quite nicely, this really this movie does feel like it's at the intersection mm. of Roald Dahl in general, uh-huh. the Adams family, and Lemony Snicket. That that's another another good because Lemony Snicket is a story about uh, children in a world that hates them, mm. and how every time something might turn out nice. Someone who hates them, who should love them, someone who is like related to them, mm. tries to destroy them. Mm. And that level of Dickensian <laughs> oppression, that level of gleeful anarchy, just, and that level of just, cynicism, just, but it all kind of turns out okay at the end, so the cynicism wasn't too bad, comes together really quite nicely yeah. in the Willoughby's. Uh, so yeah, the Willoughby's is an animated film. It's based on a book by the same author who wrote the Giver books, which I is would, a little bizarre. I never um, would have thought she'd be that funny, yeah, but she yeah. is apparently. Uh, her name is uh, Lois Lowry. It was directed yeah. by uh, a director named Chris Pern, who I know nothing about. But, Chris um, Pern did. Uh, I think he collided with a chance of meatballs too. No, that was Lord Miller. Did well, I thought he like co-directed it? Or uh, something. Maybe so. I'll look it up. Um, but the Willoughby's are an ancient. A crumbling dynasty who have made their fortune in yarn. Yarn that they grow out of their own heads. <laughs> I don't actually think that's their fortune. I think it's no, just a weird fetish that they have. It's kind of sick either it's way. really <laughs> twisted. And uh, the the two Willoughby parents who are played by, I think, Martin Short and Catherine O'Hara. Um, excuse me, it's Martin Short and Jane Krakowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have uh, four children. They have Tim the oldest, Chris Chris Pern oh. did indeed co-direct Cloudy with Color a Chance of Lord and Miller did the first one. Oh, okay. And I think no, they no, produced the second one, but I, they didn't direct it. I apologize. Uh, but yeah, there's Tim, who's the oldest child, and he has sort of the the greatest plans, and he's kind of the 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 most nervous one. Mm-hmm. There's uh, uh, um, Jane. Mm-hmm. Who is sort of the Wednesday Adams, and then there's a pair of really creepy identical twins who are both named Barnaby. Who are both named Barnaby, so they call the, them the Barnabies. The Barnabies. So hey, Barnabies, get over here. Yeah, <laughs> and we we can only tell the difference because one wears a sweater and the other one doesn't. Sweater made from their own hair, but and, they switch sweaters. But they switch sweaters throughout scenes because so, yeah. because even though their parents are rich, even though they live in this fancy estate with all this history. Mm. They are horrifically oppressed. They have no privilege. They are starved. They haven't eaten in days. They eat whatever scraps the parents leave over. Mm. And if the parents decide to gorge themselves, they don't get anything. So it's like the platform, but Mm. for kids. They they sleep in the coal cellar. Yeah, Yeah, and they're they're punished by being thrown in the coal cellar, which Mm. is just horrifying and brutal. Um, There's this weird thing where, like... The opening shows, like, the parents getting married, and then the cat, who is narrating this... Uh, who is played, played by, by Ricky, Ricky Gervais, Gervais yeah. in his best role in a long time because he's not really Ricky Gervaising up; he's just a good narrator. Mm. Um, says, "Oh, and you know what happens?" And then months later, we hear this sort of splash, and then, "Oh, what is it? What happened?" <laughs> and the dad throws the baby into the hallway and say, "How dare you!" How dare you infest our home? It's <laughs> so sick. I you're, love it. You, um, you stay out here. Your name is Tim. Goodbye. <laughs> This is a children's film. Yeah. Animated, PG-rated children's film. But that film. kind of oppression, when it's so broad and funny, every kid, whether no matter what your circumstance, has a sense that the world isn't made for them, and well, that, that parents that are out to get them, or that a, adults are out to yeah, get there's them. There's a divide when, between you and the adult world that you'll never understand. Yeah, yeah, and when it's lorded over you, like it almost inevitably is at some point by someone, so mm-hmm. we all know what that's like, and it, 
it hurts yeah. and it makes you feel like I'll get them one day. And when you heighten that and you make that the entire vibe of the story, especially when it's really broad and cartoonish and this sort of Hotel Transylvania kind of way, it works. Hmm. Like this should be way too dark, but it's not. It actually hits just the right note all the time, all the time, all no matter the time. how malevolent <laughs> the jokes get. <laughs> and uh, in in a, a, a they did. They decide. Tim decides that he wants to be like a true Willoughby, and he wants to grow a mustache, which is a big symbol of the Willoughby family. The men and the women all grow mustaches, big, yes. huge ones. Uh, but they do realize that they're kind of oppressed, and they keep reading all of these stories about heroic orphans, people like Oliver Twist, whose mm. lives turn out pretty well, and they get the idea in their head that. Orphans actually have pretty good lives. Mm-hmm. The problem is they have parents. Let's see. <laughs> How do we become orphans? Yeah, so what they decide to do, they decide they're not going to do it themselves. That would probably be one toe over the line. Mm. They're not going to do it themselves, but they engineer a vacation for their parents that will send them to the deadliest places mm. on Earth, where they, there they are cannibals make... and volcanoes, yeah. and like oh, and, the, and there's a finale. You get to go to climb, try to climb the unclimbable mountain. Mm-hmm. What comes up never comes down. <laughs> and uh, they even name check James and the Giant Peach because James is an orphan. Oh yeah, I so, forgot well, about that. Didn't didn't because James and the Giant Peach, if we recall in the book, his mm. parents went on a vacation and they were eaten, and by, they were a eaten by a rhinoceros. Yeah. In the movie, they played that up. It's kind of it's well, it's a, a throwaway line in the it's book. It's an absurd. Rhinoceroses yeah. don't eat people. No, they can kill you, but they're not going to eat you. Mm. <laughs> That's not what yeah, they do. When they when they made it, in the, the film looks great. If it's actually not a very good film, James and the Giant Peach. I, I, uh, I, I think the good outweighs the bad but not necessarily by much yeah, yeah. G- good voice acting yeah. i love the stop it's, motion show but, it to your kids they'll like it but it won't become one of their favorites exactly uh, yeah. in yeah so they they in reading james and the giant peach they thought we'll just send them away and they make up a vacation it's company. not so much that the james and the giant peach thing the idea is the uh, actually like a small baby gets left on the floor the door of the willoughby's house mm-hmm. and the willoughby's kick the kids out until they get rid of the child and they're like well we found this child at home what if we were orphans? <laughs> and so they go out on a mission and they get rid of their parents. And I'm not going to ruin... One of the things I like about this movie mm. is most movies, especially movies for children, but even something like Extraction is very, very simple and direct. Mm. Uh, there may be a few reversals here or there or an unexpected twist. But for the most part, the story goes f- from point A to point Z by way of all the letters in between. Mm. The Willoughby's switches films sometimes. And, like, it starts off one way, and then the plot gets taken mm. over by this, and the plot gets distracted by something else for a while, and then we're going to do this for a while. It's almost like an ep- one of those episodes of The Simpsons where it seems like every well, like, act has a different plot. It's not until, like, after the first commercial break that the actual plot of the episode emerges. Yeah, yeah like, for, like, was that one episode where they had a badger living in the dog's, like, doghouse, and they were trying to do everything to stop that badger, but then they found out that their uh, area code had been changed on their phone, and they're just like, well, this is the most important thing now, and the badger comes in, and Homer's just like, we've moved on! <laughs> which I'm, which is the writers yeah. goofing on themselves at that point. It is, but, like, yeah, they, th- find, they movie, find the chill, there's, yeah, there's sort bounces. of... A, this weird aside to, to this bizarre trailing the chocolate factory like candy factory mm-hmm. owned by a character straight out of Yellow Submarine. Oh yeah. Uh, including like the purple skin tone. He's designed after that old guy from Yellow Submarine. You're right. Yeah. They go back to their 
home, they realize being orphans is kind of great until they realize they can't really take care of themselves. And also people don't listen to Tim. And he, yeah. he actually kind of wanted to be in charge. Yeah. Whereas the kids are like, no, chaos now. That's what we want. And, and then so, we are introduced to Nanny. Don't don't tell them anymore. Let them discover <laughs> okay. this. I, I thought and, that was going to go in one direction. It did not. Mm. And then I thought that was going to go in another direction. And it did not. And it all comes tying, tied together at mm. the end. It feels cohesive. But it's so freewheeling, and you never quite know where the story is going to go, where the plot is going to go, where the characters are going to mm. go, until they're there. And it always feels organic. It always works. I love the design of it. I love the colors of it. Mm. I love yeah, how the plastic are all, everything is. Are all like pink and muppety looking. Yeah, I, I love. I love how everything is. You know, timed to be a cartoon and not a live action movie that happens to be animated. Like it, everything zips and flies, and reality warps to fit the joke, and not the other way around. <laughs> and it's a delight. It's a delight if you have kids. It's a delight if you don't have mm. kids. Again, it's a little dark, but it, it's like a PG, and it is a PG. Yeah. Just, just there's a little, a little malevolence well, in there, but it all turns out okay. So who cares? My, my favorite. I mean, I love kids horror movies. Mm-hmm. I think kids. And I've said this before. I think little kids like to be scared. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like truly horrified. Like yeah, they, they might wanna, not crave it, but like they, they like, they like actually, being put through the paces a little yeah, bit. Yeah. You know? and, like, and it's okay. I think that's why, you know, if you look at like Disney animated films, they always have like a scary monster somewhere in them. There are uh, stories of like having like the pitch meetings where they would walk through every single storyboard and the mm-hmm. whole room would be covered with like every single shot from Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. And then they would come in and they would show Walt and they'd walk Walt through the entire thing. And apparently like one of the things he said in Pinocchio was he raised about how Monstro wasn't scary enough. Yeah, Monstro that. needs to be terrifying. Mm. Terrify the kids because when it's over and, and everything's fine, they'll feel that much happier. Yeah, yeah, and uh... <laughs> oh, Monstro! Um, Monstro still scares the shit out of me. As such, I think it takes a certain kind of mind to make a really good children's horror movie uh, because they understand that it's okay to be a little off-putting and. The Willoughby's is really off-putting. It's made for really peculiar children. Mm-hmm. And occasionally that happens. Occasionally you'll get a Paranorman or a, or a Frankenweenie. Something that where like li- mm-hmm. strange little kids are going to rally around this thing. The Willoughby's is one of those. Yeah. Uh, it, it also contains a few like cult-friendly figures, like Terry Crews plays one of the voices. He's not that cult. Uh, maybe not. He's in Brooklyn uh, Nine-Nine. He's, um, he's very and, and I know Mark Mothersbaugh has done, like, the Lego movie and stuff, mm-hmm. but, you know, look at Mark Mothersbaugh's career. He's yeah. very much an anti-establishment guy. Uh, and I feel like the the filmmakers themselves are a little bit odd, especially given uh, the climax of the movie mm-hmm. and how it really kind of pulls a rug you didn't even know you were standing on out from under you. Yeah. It's really good. Listen, it's, just, re- it's, re- just, it's strange. It's strange, and I love that. It's, this is this movie is a real unexpected treat, mm. and I because everyone's been talking about Extraction, mm. uh, people are kind of overlooking the other big new release on Netflix that came out this last week. So do not miss the Willoughby's. It's really good. Really we highly recommend it. Uh, there's another new film on Netflix this week, and it is a documentary, mm. uh, which actually is uh, kind of close to home. Literally, it's it's like it's like a That's, ten minute drive. Uh, yeah, we we live close to Santa Monica Boulevard. You drive uh, east from where we are on Santa Monica Boulevard for about. 
20 minutes, and yeah. you will be in 40 West 40 in bad traffic, which yeah. is most of the time, most but lately, yeah. not so much. Uh, you will uh, come upon Circus of Books, uh, or rather the former site of Circus of Books. It's, it's been recent. turned into a museum recently. Yeah, and recently closed. Uh, but until recently, this was a mainstay. Uh, in the Hollywood community, it was called Circus of Books. West, West, West Hollywood. Specifically West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it's its own city. I, I always screw that up. Right. right. Thank you for that. It's it's a mainstay in WeHo. Mm-hmm. And if you drive by Circus of Books you, from the outside, you would just say, oh, there's a bookstore. You go in Circus of Books. And this is exactly what happened to me. I didn't know this anything about This has happened to about, so many people. It's happened yeah. to me, too. And I was like, oh, it was a bookstore. Nice. And I go in. And I'm like, wow, everything's really gay. And <laughs> it is. It's, it's a gay bookstore. It's a gay bookstore. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, I, I'm. I was just a book collecting junkie. So I'm yeah. like, oh, look at that. There's a bookstore. I'll go into Circus of Books, and I went in there. Oh, this is a gay bookstore. Oh, look, there's porn. And I stayed and looked at the porn. Right. <laughs> it's a bookstore where half the store was dedicated to erotic videos mm. and uh, sex toys and other uh, accoutrements, adult accoutrements. Yeah. But the other half was a bookstore, and it would sell gay pornography, but it would also just sell gay themed books. And books about the gay experience, books by gay authors. Um, there would also be magazines and such as well. So um, it really was kind of a cultural hub mm-hmm. for a long well, time. And the documentary, which is directed by the daughter of the people who ran the place, mm-hmm. uh, t- tracks her parents from when they were younger and doing things like inventing medical equipment and being like a hard-nosed reporter to when they just kind of needed money and they figured out that they could make a lot of money by just selling porn because the market for porn had moved out of the mainstream. It was hard in the early 80s when there was a lot of uh, obscenity laws and a lot of controversy. A lot of anti-gay sentiment. Watch uh, watch How to Survive a Plague at some point. Um, Or even, or or if you want something that's uh, uh, maybe a little bit more Hollywood, The People vs. Larry Flint covers some of this. Larry Flint is in the movie. Yeah, and some, some of the pornographic grounds anyway. And... The thing is, is that the only place to get certain kinds of pornography were in specialty shops. And so they opened one. It was not only successful for many, many years, but important. Well, they explain in the movie that uh, gay porn... Uh, first of all, cast your minds back to the days before the internet, before you could find porn by accident on your phone. Yeah. Uh, when porn was uncommon, uh, because you had to go out of your house and into a shop and buy it and bring it back home. There, there may, at your local newsstand, be a Playboy or a penthouse. The, if you still have a newsstand, and they're still there. Those print magazines are still... Oh, true, but I'm talking about in the 70s, 80s, whatever. Mm. Like, that's what, yeah. th- that's what was available. Uh, Maybe a few others as well. Mm. But generally speaking, pickings were slim, and it because, was pretty vanilla. Uh, because being out was uh, still uh, Ill- illegal in some places. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it's definitely taboo. Um Seeing, if you're a young uh, gay man and you see gay porn, you see two men getting it on on film, and there's just there's no authority. They're just sort of going at it. It becomes kind of important in a way, other than just getting you off. Mm-hmm. It becomes important in a way that oh, this this does happen. Well, it can happen, I, and I'm this not is alone. and I'm not yeah. alone, and this is giving me sort of a an idealized version of how the world will look someday. Yeah. So. Yeah, the, the gay erotica served a very important function, and it actually, you know, Circus of Books was one of the big important cultural hobs. Yeah, uh, the they, pe- had, they would end up opening oh. another store, and indeed, I didn't even know this, uh, in the 80s, they would even shoot their own films. They actually became right. a production company mm. that hired some of the biggest movie stars in the land. 
uh, of the genre specifically. Mm. Um, it's really cool. It's really actually. sweet. Well, and yeah. well, it's sweet, but it's not. It's not too sentimental. Like I like that the the um, who directed this Rachel Mason is her name. Rachel Mason. Okay, Rachel Mason. Who again? It's her parents, mm. and she was raised with her two brothers, and she's. There's some really nice stuff where she's like talking to her mom, and her mom just doesn't understand why this is interesting, mm. and she's just totally being off the cuff about it. But it's not hero worshipy, and in fact, she actually takes her parents to task a couple of times, pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Like not like super duper mega hard, like you don't like them anymore because they really didn't do anything that bad. But they made mistakes. They made mistakes raising their kids. They made mistakes, um, you know, in the industry and such, and. No. It, well, it's 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 surprisingly fair given mm-hmm. sort of the genesis of the project. Yeah, uh, and I, I do like that. There's a documentary about Circus of Books about sort of its place in the culture. And yeah, the interesting story is the people who ran it. Their names are Karen and Barry Mason. Uh, they were really just sort of boring business people. Uh, yeah. they, they they weren't passionate about it. No, they they, they didn't have anything they weren't gay. to say. Yeah, they, they weren't gay. They didn't care about gay porn. They weren't getting off on this. They had mm. no uh, cause in mind. They just didn't care. Yeah. They, they, they weren't homophobic, or yeah. at least not especially homophobic. Well, we find out we find out later that their 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 opinions get challenged in a way that is very unexpected to them. Mm. And I'm impressed by how it was handled overall. Yeah, yeah. As and, a documentary um, and indeed mm, in real life. Mm. Um, if you they, don't, their if show you don't is very fallible. If you don't know what PFLAG is, uh, look it up and also donate to it and join it if you know, if you mm. are the parent of a gay person. Um, because it's a very important organization. Yeah. Um, uh, march in the marches, wave the flags, show your support because it's all important. Uh, but yeah, at first you think this is going to be sort of a, a cutesy documentary. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, look, these sort of boring people ran this really illicit thing. And you do realize that after a while that they're actually really interesting people. They have mm-hmm. a lot of thought and dimension. And that that kind of essentially uh, straight outsider mm-hmm. can end up being one of the most important allies kind of unwittingly. But, and I want to make this abundantly clear because... The idea of telling an inspirational outsider story from the perspective of a straight ally mm-hmm. it can really rankle. And frankly, there's way too many movies, mostly fictional mm-hmm. movies, in which it's done in a really fucked up way. Well, like that the- Dallas Buyers Club. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm like, sorry. A straight we... guy didn't solve anything. No, okay, no, it wasn't no. all about but, the straight guy. But it wasn't about sort of how they did it her- like heroically. Yeah. It's about how they did it incidentally. And exactly. I think that's the interesting. No, part. I think I think yeah. this movie handles it real, real well because it's not so much about. It's not even about them per se. They're in there, but it's about the impact on the gay community. And we speak and to, to a lot of people within that community. Yeah. Some of them you might remember, like they were actually like some uh, uh, Alaska from RuPaul's Drag Race actually worked there. Mm-hmm. When Alaska was younger, <laughs> it's, they, they, a lot of people were talking about, yeah, I had sex in the attic. <laughs> yeah, I, I lost my virginity in the alleyway behind the store to a cop. It was great. Yeah, <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, all of that stuff is really, really lifelong. Now I just want to see a documentary about studs. 
<laughs> oh, the movie, the there's Pussycat a, movie theater. There's, yeah. there's a, there's a, there's a, there's so still an a adult little, movie a theater. A little bit further down the street, yeah. there is a, a, a still standing, still operational, well, not right now, but uh, operational yeah. adult movie house. Yeah, called uh, Studs Theater. Previously, the Pussycat Theater, mm. and uh, the Pussycat Theater was so notorious back in the day that they got famous porn stars to put their handprints in front in cement. Oh wow! Just like in front of Grumman's Chinese. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, you can see. I know uh, they used to do that in front of the Hustler store in, on Sunset. Yeah, uh, John Holmes' handprints are there. Um, uh, all of the stars from Deep Throat are mm-hmm. on there. Um, I think John Jeremy is there too. Yeah, Ron uh, Jeremy. Part, I said. You, I said, you said Ron it sounded like you said John. Uh, sorry, Ron Jeremy. Yes. Uh, yeah, I I'll, I think Ron Jeremy is in there. But yeah, fam- famous porn stars from yesteryear have their handprints out in front of the Studs Theater. Yeah. At one point, uh, Pussycat lost their lease. It became a game uh, theater. They changed the name to Studs. Um, <laughs> they used to put the name, the titles of the films up on the marquee, and I wish they still did. I, miss, I still remember the first time I drove past that. Yeah. G- guess what movie they were playing? What were they playing? Raiders of the Lost Arse. <laughs> Isn't that cute? I was Hold enchanted. On. I was yeah. like, oh my God, can we go? And my parents were like, no. <laughs> what are you thinking about? Well, I'm like, oh, right. right. Because, yeah. Because of, you know, I really, film I really didn't think this through. I apologize. Yeah. Um, uh, Dave White, beautiful, resplendent Dave White, has uh, told, oh, uh, told us about the time he went to go see Dawson's Crack. Uh <laughs> Or, the title I, still makes me I, laugh. I, I remember driving past once, and the title of the film playing inside was "God Was I Drunk," <laughs> <laughs> which could That's... pertain to just about any porno film, really. <laughs> anyway, Circus of Books. Um, if you're not from, if you're from LA, you should definitely watch it because mm. it's about LA history, and it's really, it's. I learned a few things, and other things it was just nice to see again. Mm. Um, if you're not from LA and you're not from this community, uh, you'll you'll also learn a lot. You probably learn even more. Um, and yeah. It's just nice. It's it's short. It's well paced. The the characters that were introduced to the people they were introduced to and they go are some, interesting. And they go through some like pretty it. pretty important emotional beats yeah. while during the making of the film. Yeah, um, I think they didn't know how like what was going on. Maybe Rachel Mason did know. Like that the, ulti- the ultimate the, the, fate of Circus of Books. They but, probably knew. Well, they at one point in the film, they show like their profit margins on a yearly rate. Mm-hmm. And you saw that like in the 80s, it went up, 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 up. And the 90s went down a little bit. And then it maybe it's peaked a little again. And, and then and this once dive the, is the internet. Yeah. This, yeah, the internet just basically go. And so I'm sure the writing was on the wall. They probably oh. talked about how, man, a few more years of this, we can't keep this place going. Mm-hmm. So she probably had a general sense that. Now is the time to make the documentary if you actually want to shoot inside Circus of Books. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm glad you did. This mm-hmm. is a good documentary, and I hope other people check it out. Um, did you ever buy anything from Circus of Books? Oh, I'm sure I did. Okay. Memory serves. Um, they used to have they they they. I mean, it was no, I did. Yeah, I actually okay. did. Yeah, because it wasn't exclusively. Uh, uh, gay uh, erotica. They actually did have. They had like a token section for for straight people. <laughs> I think it was just sort of just like, listen, in, you yeah. want you wandered in. Mm. Here's something for you. Mm. But yeah, so I think I did buy something from them. All right. Um, so there's two more films. Yeah, I really, really highly recommend that. So yeah, me too. Um, so there's two more films mm. uh, that we both saw this week. Uh, but but f- we're split. You saw one, and I saw one. Yeah. So we'll talk about let's talk about mine first right. uh, because. Um, it's. Uh, I'm gonna get through it pretty quick. Uh, this is a new film on Shutter. It is a Korean film called Zero Point Zero Megahertz, which uh, is basically uh, the the equivalent of white noise. Uh, it's the uh, frequency at which so the characters in the film tell us uh, we should be able to speak to ghosts. 
there, there have been several films about uh, spectral recording. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I've been to uh, Zach Bagan's haunted museum in Las Vegas, mm. where he has like a spirit radio set up in one room, and they turn it up and they turn it up really loud. Of course, there's no <laughs> lights in it. It's going to be it's it's a more haunted house experience than yeah. anything. But um, it's great. It's great. Yeah. I recommend go to go to Zach Bagan's haunted museum. Whether or not you believe in that stuff, it's fun. It's fun. And um, but yeah, you turn it up really loud and you say, and, and it's like a t- it's like hooked up to this doll that we think is possessed in some way. And, and they said, uh, and, and they said, are you here? And you're just, you're, and you, and you freak the fuck out. <laughs> and then they say, okay, yell your, and you, it's noisy. So you have to yell. You're like, do you have any questions for the ghost? Like, holy shit. No, I want to get out of here. I said, yell your question to the ghost. So I said, I couldn't think of anything. So I said, what's your favorite food? (laughs) And I just, (laughs) you. (laughs) It was the freakiest shit. That's hilarious. I love it. Uh, That sounds a little freakier than Mm 0.0 megahertz. So uh, this is a story about a college club Mm. of ghost enthusiasts. <laughs> Yay! A good setup. I like it already. Uh-huh. And uh, they are uh, on a field trip. They're mm-hmm. going to investigate a local haunting. There mm-hmm. is a small town nearby mm-hmm. uh, where off a woman lived off on her own on the outskirts of the woods, and um, she was very troubled, mm-hmm. and she killed herself. She hung herself, and because she was such an isolated person, they didn't find her until. Much, much, much later. And when they tried to pull her down, they pulled down everything but her head. So the ghost that people claim to have seen is just the head, but the hair is like walking around. And I'm like, oh, that's creepy. I haven't seen that before. That sounds creepy as fuck. Let's go. So I'm in. Would you go? I would. In the daylight with a field trip, maybe. I don't well, think but, I, I but wouldn't. It's not scary. Then. I wouldn't spend the night, which oh, they okay. do. Okay. They go to spend the night, mm. and like then they of course they and it, the first third of the movie in particular hits every cliche in the book. Mm. They stop at a convenience store gas station, and the guy at the convenience store says, "You can't go there. Scary stuff happened there." It's got the death curse. Well, it's yeah. not even that. I actually like it because he doesn't just say "You're all doomed, mm. doomed." What he says is, "Dude, that's our town." That. Happened here. People actually care about that. Don't just it's go just, disrespecting. It's really sad. Yeah, here, this is yeah. sad and and yeah, it's scary as well. But it's not for your tourism. It, yeah, don't. How dare you? <laughs> actually, like okay, fair enough. <laughs> occasionally, like like you go to Salem, Massachusetts, and they just roll with it. Now, I think that the high school mascot is the witches, just like in Paranorman. Oh, so, so tacky. <laughs> um, but uh, so they, it, enough time has passed. So yeah. they go and they're going to do some stuff involving dolls and mm. uh, spirit radios and putting cameras. Every Everywhere to try to capture the ghost, and uh, surprise, they actually summon a ghost, and some scary stuff happens. And then, much to my surprise, they leave. They the actually movie, leave. Okay, the movie's not halfway over yet, and they leave. And I'm like, I really would settle in. I thought they were just going to be stuck there, like an Evil Dead movie. But of course, it turns out they brought some of the haunting with them, and they have to yeah. solve a lot of problems. Um, that that's that's something that came along with the uh, influx of uh, mm. Japanese and other Asian horror movies mm. in the two thousands. This idea that a place is not haunted, a person is. Yeah. Um, that usually in Western films, it was all about the history of the place, mm-hmm. this, the crime that had been committed. Yeah. If there. you leave the house, you're fine. Yeah. That's why in Poltergeist, they had a child 
like get kidnapped by the house because otherwise they would leave the house. Yeah. There's no reason to stay in a scary house unless you had to. So mm. they came up with a reason that they had to. It never occurred to them that a ghost might actually just follow them, Whereas which is why you, the movie Insidious was pretty clever because they the first thing they do is move. Exactly. And yeah. then the ghost is still fucking but, there. But Paranormal it, activity is the same thing. It was, it, and all of that was preceded by The Grudge, mm-hmm. uh, which I think the first Japanese version was 2003, if I recall. And um, mm, around, early, It was early 2000s because there, there were TV movies and then the theatrical movie. But and, the idea yeah. was it doesn't matter where you go. Now they're after you. They have a grudge against you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this is a Korean film, but the same basic rule applies. And Oh, well, Tale of Two Sisters. That's also a Korean film. No, I'm just saying, it, thing, this, but, yeah. this, structurally, it's, mm. it's similar. Um... Here's the thing with 0.0 megahertz. I don't dislike this movie. I'm just not sure I would ever go out of my way to recommend it to anybody. It mostly is pretty formulaic. And when it switches out the formula, it's never so blindingly clever. You go, ooh. Mm. There's some really creepy stuff that happens with hair. Like, I didn't necessarily think that was a thing. But it turns out that, like... Having your head wrapped in living hair that starts trying to crawl into your ear is actually a pretty scary image. Which I've seen in movies before. I have, but it's pretty yeah. uncommon. Like it's it's creepy. Um, it's very well photographed. It's reasonably well acted, but for the most part, it just seems to be going through the horror movie motions. There's a bit I like towards the end where there's mm. this character who's been in the club has been kind of spooky. And we get the impression that maybe she actually can see ghosts. And we finally solidify like where she's come from, what her story is, and how it's going to directly inform the climax of the film. And that part's really, really good. And I kind of wish the whole movie had been about that part. Mm. I kind of wish she had just... She's kind of the protagonist, but I wished her story hadn't been kept a mystery arbitrarily for so very, very long. Because she seems cool, and I'd actually like to see more movies about her. Mm. But... Yeah, it just seems like they're kind of desperate to do a standard kind of ghost story with a few minor changes, which is one of the reasons why some people see a movie like this. Comfort food. Mm. I've, it's a haunting movie. I know what I'm getting, and I want to get that. And well, this is a very competently made version of that. It just If you've seen a lot of that, and you're looking for anything particularly new, you will not get it. Mm. You will go, oh, I haven't quite seen that before, but that's it. Like that's mm. you, there's nothing about it that really stands out, that really well, feels unique and distinctive. It's just a good, reasonably well made, formulaic right. horror movie. Um if you had seen this in a theater probably would have uh, been a little Friday night at midnight with probably a really a raucous better. crowd would have worked. It would have worked better, but mm. I don't think it would have kicked anyone's ass. Oh, okay. Because yeah, I'm, I'm all, willing to give, give yeah. ho- certain horror films uh, the benefit of the doubt because even if as films they're not that interesting, mm-hmm. if they do have that sort of thrilling Friday at midnight haunted house crouching in the lap of your date kind of appeal, mm-hmm. then I'm willing to give them a little bit more of a pass. I guarantee you, almost any horror movie works better with a crowd. That's just generally so certain horror. Movie. I said almost. Yeah, I like think something like it follows won't necessarily, but you know. No, I think it will because like at the because I saw it with a crowd, and I mm. think uh, um, we're all getting creeped out together. And there's that fun moment in a horror. Sometimes it it sucks when this is the only scary moment in a horror movie. Mm. But if the horror movie is also scary, the scare that exclusively comes from the audience because someone got worked up. Uh-huh. and they they freak out, and makes everybody else scream. Yeah, even and, though yeah. that wasn't actually something happening, they mm. just read too much into it or predicted the scare wrong. Uh-huh. 
that can be fun. It's just it sucks when that's the only scare you get. But I've seen movies that other people have like completely panned that played really good with an audience. Like mm-hmm. the Bye Bye Man played really good with my audience. People enjoyed oh, that movie. Oh, yeah. I don't dislike that movie. I it's not amazing, mm-hmm. but I actually think it's a really creepy film about a s- sort of taking the idea of intrusive thoughts, which we've ever had them, can be very oppressive and scary, and making them supernatural. Mm. Turn, mon- turn them into a monster. Yeah, sure. that, that movie basically works. It's kind of a stupid name, but it, it basically mm. works. Um, I, I remember we saw The Quiet Ones, and that worked pretty yeah. well in a theater, yeah, even, though, yeah, even yeah. though it was not a popular film. That's a good movie. It works Qu- fine. The Quiet Ones is just it's, fine. It's a bit formulaic, but it works. Mm. So this works. It would work a hell of a lot better with an audience. Uh, and if you just like, oh, I've seen all the other scary movies on streaming right now, or nothing's really speaking to me, when you pop this on, you will probably have a good time. It's short, it's crisp, <laughs> it like it, it doesn't feel badly paced or anything like that, and there's mm-hmm. a couple of scares, let me go, yeah. Hmm. But it just isn't remarkable. Okay. So, there are way worse sins for a movie to have, but, yeah, it's mm. just, just pretty good. Alright, well... We've talked a lot about, uh, with extraction and with 0.0 megahertz, we've talked about sort of cliche Mm. a couple times about how uh, certain films seem chained to the conventions of their genre. And To the Stars uh, follows a lot of genre conventions to a T. It takes place in uh, 1961 Oklahoma. It's about a teenage girl played by uh, Kara Hayward, who was in Moonrise Kingdom. As a, oh, I like her. Yeah, she's yeah. A, sort of a shy, bookish, glasses-wearing nerd girl in her tiny little Oklahoma town, and she is constantly picked upon, picked at by the popular girls. We've seen this. Sure have. A rowdy outsider moves into town, what? and she takes... Uh, Kara Hayward's side. Uh, Kara Hayward plays a character named Iris. Uh, the new girl is Maggie. She's played by uh, Liana Liberato. Okay. And they quickly form a very sweet friendship. They learn how to traverse the ins and outs of the horrors of the popular girls and still try to find their secret, their secret spaces where they can be friends and kind of be each other with each other. And then they end up taking moonlight swims in the local pond where they can that which has become sort of their sacred special space. Okay. All of this stuff is stuff you've read in probably a hundred young adult novels. Mm-hmm. It's stuff you've seen in every soap opera. It's stuff you've seen in a lot of indie films. However, with To the Stars, uh, director Martha Stevens gets it all right, goddammit. <laughs> she actually understands how to give her scenes a good sense of atmosphere. The place is important. And the characters are all emerging very slowly and very gradually over the course of this film, which uh, is paced just well enough. Okay. Uh, there are a few uh, faces you might recognize. Uh, Malin Ackerman is in it. She plays um, uh, the Maggie's mother. Mm. Uh, but for the most part, these aren't people you might necessarily recognize unless you're sort of deep into the trenches of indie film. The way these two teenage girls' friendship evolves is heartfelt and real. And when it starts to come to a, a head or a conclusion, if you will, you might be surprised at how much it just knocks you over. Aww. You don't really realize how much it set you up until you're bawling. <laughs> you know, uh, 
that that sounds really really great. Yeah. And you, you mentioned you prefaced this by mm. talking about sort of convention formula cliche, mm. and I think it's important to remember because we talked about it several times in this episode. Um, formulas are formulas for a reason. Mm. We found a way to tell this type of story. It works, and it seems to work every single time. So as long as we keep differentiating it a bit, and it comes mm. from an earnest place, we can do this. Mm. And a lot of coming-of-age stories hit similar beats. A lot of action movies hit similar beats. A lot of horror movies hit similar beats. Feeling a little familiar is not the end of the world. Well, it's just if, a matter of, do you tell the story great? And it sounds like they did. It's worth remembering why those things became cliches to begin with. Yeah. Why do we care about these beats? Well, because there's actually real human emotion. There's that really great speech we reference it a lot from the movie Adaptation mm. where they, he goes to the screenwriter seminar. Mm-hmm. Robert McKee. Robert McKee gives this great speech. It's like, the, don't you want to do something beyond you know just the usual cliches? The cliches are true, he says. Mm-hmm. Every day somebody's living a big dramatic moment. It's not real to have boring lives. It's just as real to have dramatic lives because people's lives are dramatic. Yeah. At some, at some point, somebody's experiencing the best or the worst day of their lives. Just write about that. And that's not fake. Uh, and I feel like uh, the director really understands that there is honesty and there is truth and there is reality to these kinds of period coming of age dramas. Um, hmm. It's also a queer film, and I don't want to allude to how because I think it's important that that remain obfuscated. Mm-hmm. But okay. I think to, by mentioning it's a queer film is a selling point okay. because it does. Uh, it's may may not be unexpected. In fact, it kind of broadcasts pretty early on. But at the same time the way it plays out is not necessarily what you might expect. Okay. And uh, it does deal with a lot of the inherent hate and prejudice that was also bubbling around at the same time. Oh, fantastic. Um, I highly recommend it. That sounds wonderful. Uh, yeah. I, 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 Like I said, I was... I, damn it, I missed it. Quietly, it. quietly and very slowly knocked over by this movie. It's just so earnest. Do you want to trade? Do you want to go back in time and watch 0.0 megahertz and I'll watch to the start? Well, we, we can still watch both, luckily. No, we have oh, to we, move on. That's true. We, we, we can't. We don't have the time. But. I know. Um, well, it sounds like a really <laughs> but great But I'm glad movie. I saw and, to the stars. All right. Well, on a critically acclaimed scale, mm-hmm. uh, we rate our movies from C- minus to C+. Plus, mm-hmm. Where C- plus is above average, C- minus is below average, and C is just plain Average tells you what we think of the movie without getting hyperbolic and without ever getting us on a poster for a film. <laughs> uh, no, you're never going to see C plus, one of the best movies mm. of the year, on a poster. <laughs> you're not going to yeah. see the C plus. Um, we, we will, we will not, we will not be your quote danglers. We kind of did that on purpose, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, so uh, on the critically acclaimed scale, where does Two the Stars uh, rate? It's definitely a C plus. Okay. I, I recommend you find it. Uh, it's on Amazon. For rent. It's not part of the Prime service. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can rent it on Amazon and other places as well. It'll cost you five or six bucks, and it's worth it. Awesome. Uh, 0.0 megahertz is a straight, perfect textbook C. <laughs> it just There's nothing particularly bad about it. There's just nothing particularly gripping about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of good scary moments, and they're somewhat undermined by the familiarity of the other moments. Uh, if you like a good uh, horror movie and you feel like you've run through your options and just want to see anything new... You'll probably have a good time, but otherwise, it's not really worth going out of your way to seek out. Uh, Circus of Books. A C+. I think this is an interesting little corner of 
LA history. If you live in LA, definitely a C plus. Yeah. If you live outside of LA, but you're interested in the history of queer culture, which you should be. Yeah. Uh, also a C plus because that'll teach you a lot. Yeah, I give it a C plus as well. Um, I was. Again, we're from Los Angeles, and we know Circus of Books. We've been there. We have friends who live like a block away. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not super surprising that I would be into a movie about Circus of Books. But I was, yeah, yeah, but I was impressed uh, by uh, how they not only talked about the local culture, but how they really put it all into context and told a genuinely human story out of it. So I liked it quite a bit. Uh, the Willoughby's. Willoughby's is a big C plus, high C plus. Yeah, just a wonderfully mm. entertaining, dark without being grim, mm. funny without being frivolous, excellent family film for weird families. Mm. Uh, I would have loved this when I was a kid. Oh yeah, because I love it now. I, I think I would have loved it more if I was like maybe fourteen. Like, about the time I was discovering stuff like The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, see, well, yeah. that came out when I was already 14. But, like, <laughs> I, was in, I was into stuff like this yeah. early, early, early on. Um, and then Extraction. C minus. This, this is a, a heartless movie. Mm. Or not heartless, soulless. Soulless, I think, is the right way. I, I, again, Heart- heartless I, implies that it's cruel. Soulless just implies that it has no direction. I, and, again, uh, I, I think it is, a, it is an impeccably technically crafted hmm. action movie. That plays like Man on Fire without a soul. Yeah. Just, yeah. it doesn't emotionally connect at all, and it's trying to, and therein lies the tragedy. Uh, but the action is really, really cool, and if all you care about is action sequences, it might be worth a watch, but my standards are higher than that. If, I, if I, I, I want, if they're going to take the movie seriously, I want to be able to take the movie seriously, and I just can't. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, that is our new release reviews for the week. And now, Whitney. Yeah. Are you ready <laughs> for the bloody mayhem? I hear you paint wagons. And unholy carnage <laughs> of Joshua Logan's Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> we asked our Patreon subscribers, we said, hey, this week, we haven't done one yet. What if we did a Western? So we picked out. Four significant westerns that we hadn't seen, or one or more of us hadn't seen, uh, that was currently available on Amazon Prime. And amongst them included The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Uh, I think you hadn't seen The Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent so Seven that was, was on, on there, there as well. Yeah. I put uh, Johnny Guitar, which is a Joan Crawford western that I heard amazing things about and never got around to. And the one that I put on as a joke to just sort of fill out the poll, you picked. Hmm. Because it is Paint Your Wagon. This extremely long movie it is nearly three hours and that's just in like reality <laughs> in, when, your, in your head it's closer to 19 and yeah um, it's a really long movie really and it stars Clint Eastwood Lee Marvin and Gene Seberg normally that'd be an impressive cast and I'm very very interested especially in 19 was it 69, 69 this movie came that's out. an that's an interesting pedigree for something like this it's a huge epic western Starring Clint Eastwood, Lee Marvin, and Gene Seberg. On the surface, I'm in. Hmm. And when I found out it was a musical, oh, fuck, yes, I'm in. I want to see that. And in fact, it's a Lerner and Lowe musical. Yeah. Lerner and Lowe did My Fair Lady. You know, they're, they're and, uh, all, South Pacific. All, yeah, well-known. No, South Pacific was Rodgers and Hammerstein. Oh, really? Um, they, they, did, they did Brigadoon, though, and they did Camelot. Um, yeah. And, um, and uh, Gigi. Oh. Uh, 
yeah, well-known songwriter duo that did f- many huge, gigantic Broadway hits, including a musical called Paint Your Wagon, which was a big Broadway hit. Yep. Uh, now, this came out in 1969, right at the time in Hollywood history when musicals had already died. Mm. Joshua uh, Logan, the director of this, mm. did South Pacific. That's how, ah, I, screwed, okay. that's how I screwed this up. Fair. Uh, yeah. South Pacific, though, is a, a different Hammerstein yeah. musical. Um, but yeah, you look at uh, sort of... I mean, there were various waves of the musical, but you can say that the sort of the high point of musicals was throughout the 1940s, perhaps. Uh, there were a lot of Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire musicals in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, then a lot of the Rogers and Hammerstein's adaptations started coming out like in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. By 65, when The Sound of Music had come out, there was this kind of uh, co- codified practice of Oscar bait, more or less, where mm-hmm. these big musicals were adapted to screens. Whether my, or not they were good or bad, they were yeah. intended to win Oscars, yeah. not to necessarily entertain. My Fair Lady, <clears throat> Oliver, these are... Gigi had already done it. Like yeah. These are huge, giant productions. Um, and some of them were enormous hits. Some of them... Some of them were enormous bombs. These were intended... Uh, to be these big screen spectacles to draw people away from their television sets. Mm. So we wanted, we we're not just going to do a movie where people sing. Like La La Land wouldn't have impressed anybody in the 60s. <laughs> we needed to do something really epic and huge. And musicals was what we had settled on a lot of the time in the era. There were also a lot of historical epics as well. There were some World War II epics like Guns of Navarone and stuff like that. The important thing is big. So they, the producers of Paint Your Wagon, in their finite wisdom, picked out a, a little musical about a boomtown during Gold Rush, uh, during the Gold Rush times, and has some some kind of famous songs. The most famous is probably "They Call a Wind Mariah," which um, it turns out is what Mariah Carey is named after. Is it really? So, so I'm told. All right, I, that so says the internet. But um, uh, and indeed, and, theme, and it's it's one of those uh, musical adaptations where they ch- apparently changed it a lot for the movie. Mm-hmm. Like Clint Eastwood's character isn't really so much of a thing in the play. Yeah, uh, there's there's a daughter in the play that isn't even in the movie. Yeah. Um, the movie is about drinking, <laughs> uh, mostly uh, drinking. Lee Marvin, rather notoriously, this is on record. Uh huh. Refuse to perform scenes without actual booze in the bottles on camera. Now, if you've ever done acting in a play or a movie mm. or anything like that where a character has to drink alcohol, vodka, gin, beer, whatever, uh, you don't get the actor drunk. Why? No. Because then the actor it. will be drunk. You can't direct a drunk actor. Uh, yeah, there was they a, will miss um, their cues. They will forget their lines. God forbid something really bad will happen. Mm. You don't do it. Now, a lot of actors perform drunk. Why? Because they're, they're alcoholics. They're alcoholics. <laughs> and a lot of famous actors have been alcoholics throughout look, the years. Look up, look up some Richard Harris stories. Oh. Uh, stories about John, Richard Harris or, uh, and Peter O'Toole just yeah, sort of acting together. John and getting, Barrymore. And, oh, like, God. Uh, yeah. There's a, a famous, well, maybe not a famous story, but uh, Terry Zweigoff, when he was making Bad Santa, mm. wanted to do an experiment. He said, I know you play an alcoholic, Billy Bob Thornton, in, in this movie Bad Santa, but just for one scene, I'd like you to be actually drunk. Let's see how that plays out. And you know the scene where he kind of staggers into the uh, 
the reindeer and just sort of smashes them with his feet. And he actually yeah. looks. He was drunk in that scene. Uh-huh. And they said, "Never again." No, not the, worth this, it. The, uh, we we got the shot. We got the scene. It looks fun, but we're not going to. It make incapacitates the, movie this the actor. Way, yeah. It's not safe. It's not responsible. It's a bad idea. It's so it's, Lee Marvin again, did it throughout. Uh, <laughs> some people might say, "Well, they're method acting." As though, uh, you know, that would help uh, the scene. And I'm not going to say that that has never been a thing. But, to quote the great Laurence Olivier, it's called acting. Act drunk. (laughs) So Lee Marvin, in this movie, anytime his character drinks alcohol, it's real alcohol. And here's the thing. He drinks in almost every shot. Like, not every scene. In almost every shot, it seems like, most Mm. of the time. Lee Marvin is a famous tough guy actor. You know him from many a tough guy role. Mm. He had, I think at this point, already won an Academy Award for a comedic performance in the movie Cat Baloo. Another mm. comedic western. So this seemed like, oh cool, maybe he'll do the, this was before Leslie Nielsen, but maybe he'd be like Leslie Nielsen and just move into performing more in comedies. And apparently this movie came out and they're like, no, that's not what we meant, never mind. Mm. Uh, Clint Eastwood was already Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Clint Eastwood had starred in, like, his Sergio Leone films. He was a big fucking deal. He was actually just about to move into directing. And apparently this movie is one of the reasons why. Uh, He started his own production company after this. Because he said, after making Paint Your Wagon, I learned everything I needed to know about how not to make a movie. Um, This this film was a disaster. You look at all of the big stories of the things that happened behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, The way Gene Seberg was horribly mistreated. Yeah. by, specifically by Clint Eastwood. Um, mm-hmm. Who has a long history of that shit. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and that kind of contributed to Gene Seberg's just bad mental state throughout her life. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that Seberg film. I, I really, really I heard it was Kristen good, but Stewart. I didn't see it. Yeah. Um, so, the, but, I, yeah. and on top of it all, like this boomtown that mm-hmm. we talk about, they didn't just like go to a set. They built it. And not only did they build it, they did shit they did not need to do. Like, they went up... To, I think they shot it in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Joshua Logan apparently saw the set and they were building this... Uh, buildings and everything, like... And working water wheels and shit. It's like... It looks like an amusement park. And when he was like, something's not right. So they flew in trees from California. So it would look more like California trees. And they would, like, do these elaborate, ornate, like, handkerchiefs that everyone could wear, and they're never in the foreground. They're always just in the... I don't don't think I saw a handkerchief. Holy shit. this This movie was apparently over budget before they started filming it. Holy shit. And this is... You can do all that stuff. Just have a a disastrous production. I would like to say, and still make a good film. Sure. Titanic was considered a disastrous production. That movie is great. It, it it's it's fun to watch. People don't care about it's a disastrous good, production good, if good, it makes a good yeah, film. Good pop entertainment, it, and and it's also one of the biggest films of all time. Yeah. So if you make a good film, people don't care about how hard I, it was. I to think make it's it. still like third most successful after Avatar and the Avengers one. Um, um, I think Force Awakens might have beat it domestically. I'm not sure. Oh, well, I'd have it's to, in the top I'd three. I have to look up the numbers. It's in yeah, the top it's, three or four. It's really it's so made yeah. a shit ton of money. That one, yeah, two studios needed to yeah. team up. Team up was hugely expensive, mm-hmm. but. It made its money back and then some. Uh, Paint Your Wagon is no Titanic. Well, that's fair. But it sank like the Titanic. <laughs> uh, sorry, that was an easy joke. I well, apologize. It works. <laughs> it works. Uh, because 
This movie blows. Uh, <laughs> it's really, but, really quite bad. It's really quite bad. So they took a lot of the songs from the Learner and Loan musical. They completely reworked the story. They put the songs in different places, so they had different meanings. Uh-huh. And then they had people like Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin, well known for their singing, to sing their own songs. Now, Clint Eastwood kind of gets away with it. He doesn't have a lot of songs. If he, he was can, surrounded by a bunch of other people who could sing. Here's what I'll yeah. say. He's as good a singer as uh, Ryan Gosling. That, like, he, he gets away sure. with it. Yeah, I, yeah. He, I wouldn't give him an album, hmm. but he gets away with it. Lee Marvin mm. sounds like um, if you like spilled whiskey on an eight track and then you played it back at like <laughs> Did you half have... speed. That's what <laughs> Lee Marvin sounds like when he's sober. If you've ever had a, a record player and you put your finger down on the label and like slowed the record down just a little bit, but it's not even. So it's yeah. like, hey, my mother gave me that glass. It was a family like that weird there's, there's warped, a, warped uh, voice. Yeah, that's Lee Marvin. Just his speaking, voice. and he has a lot of songs in this. And he has a song in this. In this, this is the one where I just started losing my mind. He has a song in this movie called "Wandering Star," where he's talking about how he was born under a wandering star. He was not meant to settle down. He was meant to just go and live in the land and just mm. go from place to place, be drift. That's what he is. He's a drifter. Mm. And over the course of the film, he gets pulled into domesticity. We'll talk about the plot in a minute. Um, so there's a point where he's kind of low and he doesn't feel like he, there's a place for him and he's walking through the whole city and it's a long shot. Now it's not the shot from extraction, but it's a long uninterrupted shot of him walking through the whole city. This should be for one thing, but before we even get to his singing, the kind of shot where all of that work on the set pays off because you can see everything, all this detail, and instead it's murky and foggy and you can't see a goddamn thing and you could have shot it anywhere. Two, Lee Marvin sings a song like this. I was born I think I have a piano roll of this one. You might, but like, it's not a bad song. It's kind of a, a sad sort of chanty, like the sort of thing that like you would hear a drunk sing in the back of a tavern in an old timey movie. That's fine. I, I could hear Tom Waits singing. Yeah, that. Tom Waits could. Tom Waits could fucking nail this thing. <laughs> Tom Waits doesn't have a classically trained voice either, but he would actually Bring tell a story. Well, to he would it. tell yeah. a story with the song. Mm. Lee Marvin is just saying words slow and slurred. Mm. It's because he, imp- he's drunk. And again, there are tons of movies where people have been cast because they're a good actor and not because mm. they're a good singer, and they get away with it to varying degrees. Mm. Uh, Russell Crowe couldn't get away with it in Les Miserables. Why? It's an opera. He never gets <laughs> to just act. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, Rex Harrison totally got away with it in My Fair Lady because actually... Mm. Not singing kind of fit the character. He was a master yeah. of diction. So or, him just saying it in kind of a staccato a beat. To her face. Yeah, um, yeah, that makes sense or, for him. That works. Or uh, I'll say this too. Uh, uh, James Cagney and Yankee Doodle Dandy. He's great. He can't sing. I'm a Yankee Doodle, Doodle Dandy. Dandy. Like he's, he's not singing. But there's spirit there. Well, and he's doing the backflips and shit. Like, I didn't know he could do that. Watch Yankee Doodle Dandy, and there's, like, this great scene where he wants to go off and join the war. Why? He's a patriot. He believes in Mm -hmm. the the cause, and we can... That's a different conversation, but Mm -hmm. he he really wants to join the war, but he's too short. 
And so they tell him, you can't go. And he's like, what? I'm not able-bodied enough? And he does, like, this massive backflip in, like, one shot. And he's just like, this isn't good enough? <laughs> and a part of me yeah. is just like, well, you're right. Give him a gun. Get him out there. <laughs> also, just yeah, also, backflipping over the Germans. Like, no, just... but, but he, he rode over there, and that's the important thing. No, no, of course. That's a wonderful movie. Uh, so, like, you, 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 so, great. <laughs> so, like, you could get away with it maybe if you tailored the material to, to Lee Marvin. Mm-hmm. But they don't. They just give him songs, and he can't mm. sing it good. Uh, Gene Seberg was overdubbed uh, for her singing. Um, all of her acting is, of course, Gene Seberg, and she's actually quite good. Uh, but her singing was overdubbed by um, uh, someone who had done a lot of um, overdubbing. Hold on. I, I, I looked this one up, and it was... Uh, oh, was it Marty Nixon? Uh, I think, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, uh, oh, Anita Gordon. Anita Gordon, okay. Anita Gordon uh, overdubbed Gene Seberg. And the, the story that uh, uh, they told mm. about um, how they found Anita Gordon, because she like had kind of quit Hollywood and mm. never really had that big a career anyway. She just had oh, this is a fun story. I looked this up. Yeah, yeah so uh, the idea was they tried... Calling agencies, calling studios, just trying to track her down, couldn't do it. Finally, they were about to give up, and they called the Screen Actors Guild, and they got the switchboard. Hmm. And they said they were trying to reach Anita Gordon, and the switchboard operator said, "Speaking." <laughs> Anita Gordon was the switchboard operator. Yeah, it just that happens sometimes. Orson Welles used to tell stories back when he was like, st- like just to make ends meet, he would do stage magic in Hollywood. Hmm. That was it. Like he was made the arguably the greatest movie ever made, and many of the other greatest movies ever made, and was the toast of Broadway for many many years. And now he's doing stage magic at a shitty hmm. club, yeah. and he thought. According to and he was he was notorious mythologizer, so there might I'm sure there's a nugget of truth in this, but he's probably telling the best version of this story, like the most story version of the mm. story. I thought I couldn't uh, I thought I couldn't get any lower than doing stage magic at that awful club. Mm. And then as I was leaving I walked through the kitchen and Busta Keaton was doing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then, you know, look at the end of his career. He's, like, yeah. voicing Transformers. Yeah, like, it's, um, it's, it's not great, but they brought her in, and uh, that, that singing is fine. But um, the problem with the movie isn't Lee Marvin's singing. The problem with the movie isn't Lee Marvin's drunk acting. The problem isn't that Clint Eastwood looks like he doesn't want to be there. The problem which he didn't. Well, of course he didn't. Uh, the problem is the story is shit. And it opens with, it opens with a number that already kind of gets us off on a bad note because the number goes something like this where am i going i don't know how am i gonna get there i don't know i don't know what's going on all day (laughs) the whole and it's a whole number about how we don't know why we're here we don't know what we're doing we don't know what the story is about and i'm like this is not getting me started on a good note i am not invested in this yet we just talked about when we were talking about the willoughby's about how uh, you know a grim story is pretty fun but Mm. this is a grim in a bad sort of way this is a grim in a way that gets gross it's grim in a way that uh it's like the the filmmakers are asking us to really have a lot of fun with characters that are legitimately horrible like would be repellent in real life at least lee marvin at least well lee marvin's pretty fucking it starts with uh lee marvin they're uh he and a bunch of compatriots are on the wagon train wagon train gold rushing and they're looking for gold and they haven't found it yet Mm. one of their one of their friends has died and they're burying him and as they're burying him they realize there's gold in the grave so while he's giving last rites there's this pan around all the characters kind of like eyeballing the grave looking to dive in yeah that's good gallows humor moment but it 
it plays really sour for some reason. Just, because, because they flip the well, body they flip out. the body like out, and then they start playing this sort of rousing traditional music, which is supposed to give us an exhilarating, excited feeling, not this kind of wicked sense of humor feeling. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a twisted joke. Hmm. And they don't seem to know that it's twisted. They seem to think it's endearing and cute. Hmm. Like, Clint Eastwood's brother just died, and now Lee Marvin uh, has agreed to be his brother's partner hmm. and share everything 50-50. And... Uh, Lee Marvin's actually a good partner. He says, "Listen, I, there, there ain't a, there ain't a law in the Bible I ain't broken, hmm. but I'll never turn my back on a partner. That's that's my line. I'll never do it. We're in this fifty fifty. We're in it fifty fifty. I give you half the gold. If you ever don't trust me, I will happily switch my bag of gold with you because they weigh the exact same. Hmm. So you get it, and that's good actually because you get a chance that he's a, a sense that he's a scoundrel." But he's not evil. Mm. He's just a scoundrel. He just his morals he are very flexible, but he has principles. Yeah. He has principles. So Clint Eastwood starts to get the sense that he can trust this guy. Mm. Eight hours later, mm. a plot point happens, and a Mormon comes into town with his two wives. And everyone in town runs. Why? Because in this town of no name, that's the name of the town. <laughs> In this town, there are no women. At all. None. Zero. All these men have been here for a while. With no women. So when there are women in town, at the very least, it's like, ooh, neat. And they all run in. First of all, those guys would be boning. Oh, they would would be boning. Like, we all can agree that there's there's bones everywhere. They, it's actually a sweet moment. Put that though. on a t-shirt. There's bones everywhere. There's actually, a, there's actually an unexpectedly tender moment mm-hmm. where the entire town comes out. Why? Because there are two women in town. This is new. Mm-hmm. And they see the two women and one of the women has a baby. And this really tough, burly looking guy mm-hmm. comes up and he says, I'll give you all the gold in my pocket. If I could just hold, hold the, the baby. baby yeah. And he holds the baby and he goes coochie coo. And I'm like, oh, you know what? This is actually kind of sweet. Maybe this movie is picking up and we're going to see that all these like really tough guys are like really nice people. No! No, because we're about to have a wife auction. Well, the, the Mormon guy says, well, I have this one. She has a baby. This other one lost a baby. But let's not ask her about that or talk about mm. how sad she might feel. About and my other wife is jealous of her anyway because he's younger. So, so. so uh, she's Jean Streberg. I have no more use for her. So let's not talk to her at all. Let's just put her on an auction block in uh-huh. this town of hundreds of men. Yeah. And I can make some money off of this. And she just sort of goes along with it. Well, clearly he's an asshole. So I think she's just rolling the dice that whoever I end up with might be better than him. Mm. So they're on the auction and they're just, everyone's like throwing out numbers. Lee Marvin's been drunk this entire time and hasn't noticed what's going on. Mm. He wakes up in the the, uh, saloon. Mm. And he sees Gene Seberg there. And oh, woman, what, what the fuck? And he's going around like, there's a woman. Does anyone know there's a woman as loon? Yeah, we're way past that, Lee. We're having an auction. We're trying to buy her as a wife. Mm-hmm. And he just runs up there and says, whatever the number one bid is, I double it. And then he passes out. And everyone's like, shit, that's a lot of money. Okay, yeah, he gets the he gets Gene Seberg. Because mm-hmm. he bought her while he was yeah. drunk. And then uh, he buys so, her. So it's about slavery. Now, yeah. Oh, and it gets more about slavery, too. Mm. It gets grosser, because after he buys Gene Seberg, 
and there's this weird celebratory marriage, and everyone follows him to his tent. And, and he's and he's very modest about it. And, oh no, how are we going to clean him up in time? So uh-huh. evidently he's getting married that day. Oh yeah, they're rushing into it. So and then once he, gets drunk, in, yeah. once he gets into a tent, he rips her blouse off. Mm. She's not naked naked, but, but she's, she's in a, a bodice. She's, she's, yeah. she's in her underwear. And she slaps him and she just says, hey, mm. I know you bought me, but I am not a sex worker. I'm. This isn't what we're doing here. You're going to give me at least the modicum of respect that a husband gives a wife. Mm. And he's like, well, what do you want? Uh, <laughs> respect? Oh, how do I? What? She's just like, oh, look, just buy me. A, build me a cabin. Mm. He's like, all right, I'll build you a cabin. Fade in, fade out. They've boned. Okay, cool. So here's the problem. There's still only one woman in this town, and everyone's spending all day just staring at her, and Lee Marvin is getting kind of jealous and creepy. And uh, there's, yeah, there's a scene later on where she, uh, she has to take a bath. But she has to kind of sneak out in the middle of the night so men aren't always ogling her while she's bathing. She has to go out when everybody's asleep. Yeah. And she sneaks back in. She's, like, drying herself off. Where have you been? Yeah, it gets gross. Uh, it's already horrifying, but it just gets grosser and grosser as also, time goes on. Also, it's an alcoholic Lee Marvin with these gigantic walrus whiskers, and he's kind of repellent. And yeah. uh, not oh, just smells not, terrible. Not just as a character. Yeah, I, like, I could smell this guy. Like, yeah. he's smell- at home on the couch. <laughs> Somehow they managed to digitize that in the streaming service. It's not a service we want at Amazon Prime. Any piece of furniture that he sat on bears his mark. (laughs) The story goes that Mm. while he was fighting with Joshua Logan, Mm. uh, he peed on Josh Logan's shoes. Mm. Josh Logan disputed this Mm. and said, I've worked with Lee Marvin. We have a lot of respect for each other. And yes, sometimes we disagreed. Mm. But I can tell you for a fact he never peed on my shoes because when he was drunk, he did not have the aim. <laughs> he was too drunk, too drunk to pee on a shoe. To successfully yeah. pee on a shoe. Um, so the problem is, okay, there's still only one woman in town. Every other man here is constantly horny. Mm. What do we do? So they hold a town meeting, at which point Clint Eastwood says, what if we kidnap a bunch of women and make them work in a brothel? And everyone's like, Cool. Except for one guy who's uh, like, isn't that evil and slavery? And everyone's, and for a second, Clint Eastwood's like, oh yeah, you're right. And then Lee Marvin's just like, well, we're doing it anyway. And then and they do. it's supposed to be really joyous and the women are brought in and it's this really he happy kidnaps the, He kidnaps these women. He like steals the stagecoach and the women are in the back and he comes in and there's this celebratory song as though this isn't horrifying. Mm. And then we never really see the aftermath of that. It just cuts to later. The town is bigger and the brothel is very popular and all those women work there. Are they happy? What what happened? Here's an interesting story based on real life. A lot of people moved uh, up and down the the West Coast during the gold rush. They were looking for gold. They were looking to strike gold. Uh, One uh, enterprising young gold rusher decided to... uh, go up there and find, try to find their fortune in gold, found enough gold dust just on the trail, not even to, like, the boomtown where all yeah. the gold was supposedly going. They just sort of picked some up along the way. It was just enough to open a brothel on the way. Mm. So a lot of the gold rushers rushing through could just sort of stop and stay at this little uh, little hospitality suite with the, the company of a young lady. The owner of that brothel was named Fred Trump. Yep. That's where the Trump fortune comes from. Yep. It comes from paint your wagon. <laughs> no wonder the there's more terrible. evil than you thought. Anyway, uh, so Jim anyway, Seabrook, so anyway, uh, the kidnapping of the kidnapping yeah. 
and forced sexual servitude oh. of many women is now immediately glossed over and forgotten for the rest of this three-hour movie. Uh, and there's two hours left. Meanwhile, uh, Gene Seberg, who uh, is is admittedly a little bit up to her eyeballs with uh, Lee Marvin, starts making eyes at the admittedly more handsome young Clint Eastwood. Yeah, who is playing a pretty goody two-shoes kind of guy. Yeah. Um, he doesn't really do anything wrong. He doesn't drink to excess. Um, he's honestly kind of barely there as a character, but mm. sorry, you put anyone next to drunk Lee Marvin, they're going to look pretty good. Yeah. And if they look like a young Clint Eastwood, they're going to look really good. Mm. So they start having... You know, moon eyes. Nothing. Nothing happens. But Lee Marvin sees. There's a good bit because Lee Marvin like sees them and they're both on the same horse and he freaks out. Yeah. And he hits Clint Eastwood and he says, "Why were you on the same horse?" Well, it's like I had to. We were we were riding together. It's a horse. And he was like, "Ah, but where was her horse? That was her horse. Ah, ha, ha, ha. But where was your horse?" You borrowed my horse. <laughs> so oh. Why did we have this scene? <laughs> so there's a bit where he finds out that Gene Seberg is basically in love with Clint Eastwood. Mm. And Lee Marvin, to his limited credit, says, well, fair enough. Um, ah, I'm a wanderer anyway. I had a good time. I'll, I'll leave you be. And then Gene Seberg says, no, wait, don't, don't go. I'm in love with you. Mm. And Lee Marvin says, you just said you were in love with him. And she says, I am in love with him. And there's like, what the fuck do we do with that? And then she says, well, I was just one of two wives. Why can't you be my two husbands? And there's a bit where they go, no. Well, well okay. no. Well, and if, if, the arc of, well. if the arc of the movie had been about her, mm-hmm. she's a sister wife who is oppressed and is feeling, has lived this tragic life. Her child died. And, you know, right when everything seems worse, she's auctioned off by her husband. She's not even wanted anymore. Uh-huh. But then she, she's able to get the power she's, in that yeah, relationship. And, and so yeah. she realizes that this guy bought her, but uh, he bought her under duress. He doesn't like necessarily like her. Was, so now he was drunk. He was I mean, drunk like, at the time. Know. So now she has a little bit more power over this relationship. She realizes that she actually has a lot more agency now and takes on a second husband. If that was the arc of the movie, that actually would be an okay arc. Well, that'd be kind of interesting. And there's there were movies mm-hmm. about uh, sort of subverting the conventional sexual paradigm. Uh, that we were familiar with. There were a lot of movies about wife swapping, uh, you know, Bob and Carol and Ted now is that mm. kind of thing. So this was, you know, it's risque. Mm. It's certainly uh, unconventional. It'd be unconventional even today. Mm. Uh, it's actually, uh, did you ever see that Barry Levinson movie Bandits with Billy Bob Thornton and Bruce Willis? Yeah. You know, it's not bad. Okay. It's too long, but uh, mm. but the characters are really, really great. It flew under a lot of radars. It's pretty good. Mm. Bruce Willis and Billy Bob Thornton play mismatched uh, robbers, where Bruce Willis is very Bell- cavalier Bell- and flip. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, Billy Bob Thornton is fiercely intelligent, but intensely neurotic and fearful. Mm. In the course of one of their bank robberies, they take a woman hostage, played by Kate Blanchett, mm. uh, and she gets really into it. <laughs> Like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to her. And over the course of the film, she ends up, they end up, like, having to run away, like, separately. Mm. And she runs away with, like, Bruce Willis, and they have an affair. And then something else happens, and she has to run away with Billy Bob Thornton. And then they have an affair. Mm. And then, rather than just have them fight over each other, she's just like, great, we're all dating. (laughs) Awesome! It actually works! Mm. Like, it actually, it's a very unconventional and fun Mm. heist movie. It gets a bum rap, I think. Um, So, like, I'm kind of with 
this bit here, where for a second I'm like, okay. But maybe we're looking at something a little bit progressive here. Yeah, which, again, doesn't necessarily make it dramatically satisfying or funny or a good musical, but at least it's novel. Mm. At least it's something I can, you know, cling to to get through this 18-hour mm. <laughs> thing. <laughs> Ran out of words mid-sentence. Um, but then that ends up not being super important and they just sort of live together for a bit and it's fine. And then some religious people have to leave with, live with them and Gene Seberg gets a little awkward and she's just mm. like, ah, oh, let's just say I'm married to Clint and you stay at the whorehouse for a while. And he's just like, ah, well, Marvin. There, there appears to be, over the course of Paint Your Wagon, this weird sort of, what I think guest might be an attempt at subversion at trying to say all of these boom this particular boomtown was a place where conventional morality didn't apply well, you and we're make, and we're making it work without that conventional morality what could have been i think you maybe could have done that mm. if you'd shown and confirmed that people were happy yeah the women that they kidnapped I need to know that they think this is better than what they had. Yeah, like before. maybe they had um, an even more miserable life before. You need better or, for. Or if they were sex say, workers yeah. before, like you could have confirmed that or something. And it's just like, well, we were going to San Francisco, but there's so much business here. Mm. Like you could have played with that. You could have, and actually, there's a lot you can talk about. Like a lot of stories about the frontier are about how the further away you get from a centralized society, the more uh, morality becomes fluid and ethics become flexible. And, you know, it's about people who, oh, well, we're far away from the law. We may as well kill and do all these horrible mm. things. And that's why Clint Eastwood has to come in and fix things violently because there's no actual, like, system in place to deal with it. That's mm. what a lot of frontier stories are about. And to talk about that in a way that goes kind of beyond violence, I'm interested. <laughs> I, I, you, you could do that. Yeah. You, could, you could get my attention with that. But they just kind of don't. And then there are these huge, long asides where Lee Marvin, like, takes the kid of that religious family and, like, treats him oh, to his first right. drink and cigar. And, and buys him his first woman. And, yeah. Oh, great. And, nice. uh, and, and, and again. And it just goes on and on. Everything and that on we've talked about, on, every plot point that we've on, talked about, mm -hmm. would have fit pretty tightly in a 90-minute movie. Yeah. Three hours, this thing. Like, nearly three hours. Mm. It ends... I, I wouldn't call it spectacular, but it is well, big. It, it ends in the way that something like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World might end. In yeah. this kind of big, gigantic slapstick set piece. Yeah, this intensely... Mm. Like, you would never spend this much money on a comedy now. Mm. But, um, yeah, so... Uh, everything's gone to hell. Everyone's fighting with each other. And... At some point, Lee Marvin had started, like, digging for gold underneath the city. Mm. And there's actually one funny bit. There's one funny line that made me laugh. Where uh, a preacher who has been, like, kind of in vain trying to tell everybody that they're living in sin this whole time. Mm. They're going to have a gladiator match between a bull and a bear. That's some Game of Thrones shit. Well, I, do you suppose the imagery was had, had something to do with, like... Like the economic symbolism of bear and bull markets. I think that's probably a stretch. Yeah, well. Look, I'm looking for something. I mean, look, here. you can look at like the bear representing the wilds and mm. the bull representing some form of like domesticity because it is a farm animal. Mm. 
Maybe. I don't know. But point is is that this is getting to some hedonistic Sodom and Gomorrah shit. And he even had a song where he was talking about his whole town's going to hell. Well, guess what fucking happens? (laughs) He ends up falling into a cave-in. In the well, middle of a they've, sermon, they've, yeah, dig it. This this yeah. town is now completely riddled with tunnels underneath. Yeah, so the ground doesn't stable anymore. Yeah, and it's always been muddy. And he just like starts jumping up and down, saying everyone's going to go to hell. And he jumps up and down, and he falls into a sinkhole right in front of Lee Marvin, who has just been drinking in the tunnels. And Lee Marvin, without missing a beat, says, "Hello, preacher. Welcome, Welcome to, to hell." hell. And well, <laughs> well, I wish they put that at the beginning of the movie. Um, <laughs> The bull falls through the ground as well. The bull starts going haywire in the tunnels, knocks down all the supports, and the entire town is destroyed in this big, long 15-minute sequence where buildings tip and things fall into the ground. And to the movie's credit, Hmm. it's huge. Hmm. There are these giant shots of giant crowds running away from buildings that are tottering this way and that, Hmm. and uh, giant, like, wheels that are falling off of their various buildings, and Bridges collapsing, and you know that's real because people have been living on this set. Like you can see, this is not faked. And to be fair, it's hell of a thing. <laughs> like it's hell of a thing to see. Like yeah. like holy shit, actually built sets that rotated. Yeah, so, yeah, and like and like collapsed, and you probably only had one chance at that. Like and the people are acting in front of it. Like wow. <laughs> so uh, kudos for the sense of scale. For building this huge thing only to wreck it in spectacular fashion. I wish it was funny. Because it's not. Like, yeah. the end of Mad, 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 Mad World, like, everything that's being wrecked and people, like, flying on ladders and shit, it's genuinely funny. It's just well-timed. Be, it's, just because of the chaos of well, it And all the cast and, actually deserves yeah. all the shit that's happening to them. And, yeah, all the people in this town deserve it, but not in a comical Looney Tunes way. Mm. In a legitimate biblical way, most of these people are monsters. <laughs> and we're supposed to think this is delightful. Hmm. It is not delightful. It's just not fun. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not gripping. It's boring as shit. It's uh, a movie that I'm going to say this right now. Hmm. I'm glad I saw. <laughs> well, when whenever somebody says, uh, or when you hear by scuttlebutt, hmm. that... XYZ movie is the worst of all time or the worst of the decade or one of the most notorious bombs ever. That intrigues me. Makes you want to see it, doesn't it? Now, I've too often encountered this idea where, you're like, somebody says, oh, this is the worst movie of all time. Oh, clearly you don't see enough movies. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, Well, if you've seen the movie, you generally have that idea. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I can't believe you liked the remake of Black Christmas. That's the worst movie of all time. No, it is not. No, in fact, but, that, that actually has some interesting ideas in it. Yeah, it's, that's, like, say what you, you will. You can, like, tell, it's not... you can tell they filmed on a very small budget, but that yeah. doesn't hurt it necessarily. No, uh, no, it's way too interesting. It's not even the worst, like, horror movie of the year by any stretch of the imagination like so the phrase worst of ever worst of all time but paint your wagon has been floating around in the consciousness uh, for a long time ever since the golden turkeys and mm-hmm. um, I remember reading about it uh, uh, stuff like this in the golden turkeys and there are various films if you aren't familiar with the golden turkey awards they predated the Razzies mm-hmm. there was a book written by the Medveds right uh, yes uh, and uh it was at a time when bad movies were considered, generally speaking, simply bad movies and were not really to be dwelled upon. Hmm. A book that cataloged and made entertaining hmm. the worst movies ever made, according to these people who wrote the book. Hmm. 
the book was an indispensable tome for cult movie enthusiasts. It was pretty witty. Mm. It raised our awareness of a lot of films we might not otherwise have heard of. And uh, there's a lot of movies in there that I have been seeking out ever since. One of them is a movie I actually just got to see this last week. You know, we were talking uh, last week about Tubi and how they have a lot of interesting kind of older and cult stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Turns out they have Matilda. Not, not the Roald Dahl movie. The Elliot Gould Boxing Kangaroo movie. Have you ever seen Matilda? I've not seen Matilda, but I'm, I'm interested. Oh, my goodness. Elliot Gould... Back when he was a star, by the way, this isn't like him as an up-and-comer or him as, like, falling. Like, Elliot Gould was a huge star in the 70s. Mm. Elliot Gould plays a talent promoter who runs into a boxing kangaroo. And he teams up with Robert Mitchum to make that boxing kangaroo the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Mm. <laughs> they do not have a real kangaroo. They have a suit that would be laughed out of most costume parties or give children nightmares because it is creepy as fuck <laughs> and they just keep walking around with it. It is inept. It is weird. It is sexist. And man, so glad I saw it. It's so fucking bad, you guys. It's so, it's the kind of bad, like paint your wagon, which is why I bring it up, that you kind of forgot they could do because there's a lot of bad movies out there that are bad because they're inept. Mm. They're so badly written. They're so uh, evil. You know, they just have themes that, regardless of where your themes are, you've all seen movies where I cannot get behind this movie's message. Mm -hmm. It rubs me the wrong way. It's not bad like that. It's not bad because the acting is bad. Because, frankly, the acting isn't uniformly bad. It's bad from the concept it's, it's onward. A, it's a bad idea. It's a um, bad idea, and they threw money and talent at it, and no one could overcome the bad idea. And that's true for Matilda, that's true for Cats, mm -hmm. and that's true for Paint Your Wagon, where no amount of talent... I mean, maybe if they'd stuck to the original Broadway show, which I haven't seen, maybe the original Broadway show could have worked. I don't know. What I do know is that what they had, which was written by Patty Chayefsky, <laughs> the writer of Network, he did the adaptation. Uh. That's how much talent they threw at this fucking thing. Mm. No one could save it. No, 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 no. Wow, am I glad I saw this pa weird, paint your terrible film. Yeah, Painter Wagon is one of those fascinating disasters. You're, lo you're watching the movie, and of course, while you're watching it, you're like grabbing your phone every couple of minutes just to find some explanation for this. And <laughs> so you'll get to know a lot about the production history probably yeah. while you're watching it because you can't stay away from looking it up. Well, there's a lot of downtime. Yeah, Everything yeah. takes forever in this movie. So you might as well check the IMDb trivia. It's not that long, but it's full of good stories. Full of a lot of good stories. And so as as you're watching it and as you're learning more about it, it just becomes more and more baffling as to how a disaster of this size, of this scope, could actually be put on screen. And it does happen in Hollywood from time to time, and it's rare. It's really rare when you get a fiasco. Mm. And oh Painter God. Wagon is a fiasco. Oh, my God. The same way Cats is a fiasco. Just n nothing good. The same way Showgirls is a fiasco. Yeah. Just nothing. None of the ideas gelled. Nobody said no. They mm -hmm. just kept spending money. Uh, 
they were so hell-bent on this idea of making a prestige picture that they didn't... <laughs> Your scientists were so busy <laughs> thinking whether or not they could, could that they never stopped to ask if they should. And... Uh... <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, watch Paint Your Wagon because it'll hurt yeah. in a really special way. Yeah. And, uh, and again, if you have Amazon Prime, it has no additional fee. It is three hours of non-entertainment. If you're trapped at home, you may as well spell, spend it with a surly cellmate. <laughs> Great way of putting it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so we decided after this thing uh, that we needed to class the joint back up again. So we're headed back over next week to the Criterion Channel, mm. uh, the streaming club. We wanted to explore uh, film noir. We haven't done a film noir yet in the streaming club, and the Criterion Collection has a lot of it. Mm. Uh, and um, interestingly enough, Mm -hmm. Uh, we had another film that doesn't get a lot of attention Mm -hmm. that was selected by our patrons. Our patrons have really interesting tastes, and I love them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. You can vote for this every week. Uh, The film that we are going to do is a film that I have been wanting to see for a really long time, and I am super excited. I finally have an excuse to sit down with Green for Danger. Yeah, Green for Danger uh, is a film that actually for a long time was unavailable. When I was working at a store called Laser Blazer mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles with a man named uh, Lon Harris, uh, who a lot of people know from Screen Junkies and the movie trivia Schmodown. We worked together at that video store. Um, we had a whole section, mm-hmm. it was really important, of movies that were on Laserdisc but had never been on DVD. We had phased out a lot of the laser discs, but this was really important because this is the only way you could see the short films of Martin Scorsese. This is the only place that you could see Green for Danger. And I never had an opportunity to read that laser disc, and I never had an opportunity to watch it when it finally came out on Criterion. And now we finally get to Green for Danger is about a series of mysterious murders taking place at a hospital in London during the Blitz. I'm in. That sounds good, amazing. Good premise. That's a great premise. I'm super, super excited by it. Uh, so let's check out next week Green for Danger. We will also be reviewing more new releases. And again, on streaming, you know, some movies get more like advanced press than others, but we'll almost definitely be reviewing the new releases on Netflix, Dangerous Lies and Rich in Love. And that's that. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to email us and talk to us about our reviews or any of the comments that we've made or just ask us anything at all, ask for our list of favorite things or what snacks you eating right now and what are you growing in that garden or whatever. Uh, you can ask us anything you want. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and we will, uh, if it... Makes the cut. We get a lot of letters. We read, we read as many as we can. We read uh, your letters on our podcast. We've got mail here at mm. Critically Acclaimed Network. Also here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, we have our relatively new show, Episode Zero, where we are talking about all the films that influence Star Wars. One podcast, one film. Uh, this last week, we did the tr- experimental film 2187, which led to a really interesting conversation in which we kind of unlocked all of George Lucas's filmography. <laughs> it was the key. We found it. It kind of was a big yeah. deal. So next time we're doing something a little bit more um, well-known, we're going to talk about the influence of The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. which is uh, 
frankly, just one of the most influential films ever made. You could throw a rock and hit a movie that was influenced by Wizard of Oz. But I think it'll be a really fun conversation, and any excuse to talk about a timeless classic like Wizard of Oz is an excuse I will take. Absolutely. Um, and uh, also, Cancel Too Soon is coming back. We know it's been off for a few weeks, but we kept well, promising been... we do Flash Forward, yeah. and it took a really long time to get around to it, and hopefully we can do it later this week. I, I would hope that... Uh our discussions of Firefly, which is technically an offshoot of Cancel Too Soon, is yes. enough to bridge the gap. Uh, but yeah. we do realize we took on a heavy load. It was a 22-episode, uh, mm-hmm. one-hour-per-episode uh, television show. So it's amidst all the other things we have to do, has been a little bit tough to catch up on. But we are still doing it. We haven't forgotten. Yep. Uh, we also have a ton of stuff on our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed. You can hear our Firefly podcast. We're doing one episode of Firefly per podcast per week. It'll cost you a buck a month. Yep, that everyone gets that podcast. Boom. Uh, we also have uh, Not on Disney+, Plus, which we're going to record later this week. We're reviewing uh, movies, mostly TV movies that are not available on Disney+, Plus, but should be, and there's no reason not to. Uh, we have All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. We're currently on the second season of the original series. Big, long backlog, so if you want to join up, you'll get, like, 29 hours of content, like, right away. Mm-hmm. Um... And also Only the Best, we review uh, every film ever nominated for Best Picture. We have commentary tracks. And stick around because uh, in the next week or so, we're going to do a light updating on our perks. We're going to add a new goal now that we're done Firefly. And uh, we're going to change a few things around a little bit, but only in a way that will allow us to get you more content faster. Mm. uh, As opposed to some of the things that we have now, which... Yeah, we, we can fall up a little bit behind, but we we're, we're, want to fix all of that. We want to get you cool stuff right away. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody who supports the show. We couldn't do it without you. If you can't afford to join us on Patreon, cool, fair enough. Um, subscribe if you haven't already. That would be really, really nice. Follow us on Twitter, tell a friend. Anything like that would be really cool. Leave us a rating. That'd be wonderful. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Whitney? Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and never forget... Everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>